Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast, where in this episode we celebrate 25 years of the Ren and Stimpy Show. Hello boys and girls, this is your old pal Ben Mitchell, joined by Steve Henderson and uh, feeling a little old at the realization that the groundbreaking Ren and Stimpy show did indeed debut 25 years ago this month. So strap on your happy helmets and unwashed lederhosen, because in this episode we're revisiting some of our earliest podcast interviews, as well as a whole crop of brand new ones, showcasing some wonderful insight into the production of one of the most troubled shows in animation history, yet at the same time undoubtedly one of the most influential. And while there's been much documented on the dramas and fallings out and general clusterfuckery of the show as it came together, as well as the perceived value of its various iterations, what I've really set out to do here is celebrate the show's true artistry and legacy, because certainly it's no secret that Ren and Stimpy, for me, is... Not where it all began, because obviously there was, you know, Looney Tunes and stuff before then that I was exposed to as a kid. The really kind of higher quality animation that was elevated above 80s Saturday morning cartoon fare. Uh, Ren and Stimpy, I think, was the first one that really kind of made me sit up and pay attention as far as new shows went. You had something like The Simpsons, which was this incredibly cool, like it was almost like... Um, the Simpsons was almost equatable to like a status symbol, like, if you'd seen The Simpsons, or if you had, like, a Simpsons backpack, or The Simpsons Sing the Blues, <laughs> one of those, you know, <laughs> really yellow arcade. album. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was almost like the, the show itself came second. It was more like a brand. Mm-hmm. Especially in England, if you didn't have cable, you, you didn't see it for years. Um, and I'd see the odd episode when I'd, I'd go visit Canada. But it took a long time for it to become, like, just a show that's on all the time on terrestrial television. So The Simpsons was like, it was a very it was a very valuable show as far as letting the world know that animation could be relevant. But Ren and Stimpy, I think, was the, the first show that really felt, I mean, I hate the word, but edgy, I guess. Something that, you, that felt non-patronizing, non-condescending. Something that didn't mind giving you nightmares. You could walk away from a Ren and Stimpy episode feeling genuinely emotionally distressed. Yeah, yeah. And I think maybe initially that put me off a bit. I may have been at that little bit too young in the for the first season. I do remember being quite troubled by uh, a very early sequence where Ren is grumpy, as is often the case. So Stimpy creates a helmet that plugs into his brain and forces him to be happy all the time. This, I think, was one of the like first like classic episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, this led to like the music sequence, the happy, happy, joy, joy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the transformation of Ren from grumpy to happy is animated in such a nightmarish, like (laughs) unrelenting way. Because the last thing in the world he wants is to be happy. It's like an assault. It's the equivalent of the scene in The Clockwork Orange. Yeah, absolutely. And and he's he's in despair. And throughout, and even when the the transformation is complete, you can tell he's he's in there somewhere suffering. While his body and his mind are like sort of forced into this state of happiness, and the, the clicking and cracking of his teeth as they yeah. <laughs> as they emerge from his mouth, it's just absolutely, it's so expressive. Yeah, and there was there was really nothing like that that was so intense. Yeah, uh, and this was part of this like new Nickelodeon lineup where you had on one hand the Rugrats, adorable, and Doug, 
which if anyone <laughs> if anyone remembers Doug, it was about this sort of mawkish teenager who kind of had the blues, and then you know, juxtapose that with like babies who were you know going on little baby adventures, and then you just have this like bubble of psychosis in the middle. But it also voiced by Billy West, Doug. Yeah, what a testament to his like right, and it's not that different from Stimpy or Fry, like in his own sort of speaking <laughs> voice. Yeah, and yet conveys a completely different vibe and tone and personality. One thing I did remember, I think my introduction actually to the show came from like a video game. Okay. Which would not be particularly memorable, but one of the like old Nintendo games where you're just wandering around collecting things and you're Ren or Stimpy, whatever. And what I liked about the characters in the game was that the the character of Stimpy just had this middle-aged man's voice. Yeah. Yeah. Which it was the last voice you would think would come out of that character design. Yeah. And then I, I wouldn't have gotten the reference then, but th- th- I guess it was initially modeled very much on Larry of the Three Stooges. Mm-hmm. And Ren, while Ren's characterization was a very complex, at times sort of schizophrenic, that actually felt more within the mold of cartoons. You know, have a chihuahua that had what was a predominantly kind of Mexican accent, but would then become, in one sentence, Canadian when he's being particularly emphatic. You know, like he was sort of all over the shop, and that's owed to both John Kay and Billy West. Um, they both played Ren, uh, John until he was fired, and then Billy took over, and they both do an amazing job taking on that sort of Sybil-esque multiple personality element of Ren. Billy really sort of got to go the extra mile, perhaps by virtue of getting to play the character for longer, uh, as well as you know so many other members of the Ren and Stimpy ensemble. Uh, but we spoke to Billy West pretty early on in the podcast run, around the time Futurama was brought back. And so here are some of his remembrances of working on Red and Stimpy. I packed up and I said, you know, L.A. is probably where I want to be because I was I was doing voiceover and a lot of character work. And I said, why, you know, why don't I just audition for commercials and, and animation, and which is what I did. And then in 1990. Um, I was approached by two different creative forces at Nickelodeon. One was the, uh, the show Doug. Uh-huh, yeah. And that was the Nickelodeon version, not the Disney one. And, uh, you know, I did that for four years as, alongside of when I was doing uh, Ren and Stimpy. So that was quite a bit of overlap then, I guess, because I guess that was Ren and Stimpy would have ended like a year or two years after that. Yeah, I think Ren and Stimpy ended by 1995 officially. Uh-huh. Was it because of the time on the Stern Show that brought you to the attention of the Nickelodeon people? I'm not sure. Maybe that's true. Because I hadn't really done anything before that, except in 1988, I, uh, they were doing a version of Beanie and Cecil. Uh-huh. ABC, and uh, that whole thing was a mess. <laughs> but, uh, but I was called upon to do uh, Cecil the Sea Six Sea Serpent, and... You know, it, it was fun, and it was new to me. I said, this is my first official cartoon Yeah, yeah. that I was in in 1988. And was Chris for Lucy involved in that one? Yeah. Sort of rings up, yeah. So that could possibly be the, the connection. Yeah. Um, how did then, when you were approached for, say, Ren and Stimpy, what was the kind of pitch to you as a performer? Since I had worked with John Chris Lucy, however briefly... He just remembered stuff that I used to screw around with. I'd be toretting out characters and all this other stuff. And one of them was that I had this great love for Larry Fine of the Three Stooges. Uh-huh. And he was the one that didn't seem to do anything and except now and then say something. But when he said something, it used to split me yeah. in half. And 
and I thought it was so beautifully funny and peripheral that I fixated on it so I could do his voice. Mm-hmm. But uh, when John Kay brought Ren and Stimpy around, he had me in mind for that the Stimpy voice, but we needed to, you know, pitch it up, make it more childlike than you know, because Larry just sounded like a depressed old Jewish guy. <laughs> he knows. Yeah. And so Stimpy was kind of childlike and kind of innocent. You know, he could be loud and, and uh, boisterous at times, and he could cry. But they did a lot of screaming between the two of them. Yeah. I auditioned for both characters when it first was brought to my attention, and I did an audition. We were on our way to Nickelodeon. Uh, John Chris Fusey was going to sell the show, sell the voices, and uh, we recorded a bunch of stuff in the closet at uh, <laughs> MTV at the last minute, and John went in to meet with the Nickelodeon people, and uh, he came out and he says, what you did sold the show. <laughs> and uh, so then, but I didn't know that his agenda was that he wanted to do the voice of Ren, which was fine by me. I mean, I didn't yeah. care who did what, to tell you the truth. I really didn't. Um, but, you know, and, he, and it was such a great character and everything, but he got into trouble with Nick, business-wise and creative-wise, and they parted ways, and, you know, the show was going to fold. And there would have been, like, you know, hundreds of people out of work. And, um, you know, I decided to not only stay with the show, but they auditioned every voice actor in Hollywood for the voice of Ren. And then they said, wait a minute, wasn't Billy... (laughs) Didn't he read for it originally? And said, why don't we try him? So, you know, I tried to replicate the character as it it had become to be known, but I, uh, I have a somewhat different idea about it and I was basically doing what I did in my original audition yeah there were sort of unique takes to both of them but it was fundamentally the same character I mean I always sort of felt that Ren Howick as a for a voiceover artist must have been something of a dream character to get oh, to sort of sink your teeth into that John brought to it his invention and his interpretation of like you know 1940s dark figures yeah <laughs> you know 1950s Jackie Gleason types and sort of people like Peter Laurie and, and Kirk Douglas and yeah, all, all kind of rolled into one and I thought it was brilliant and I loved when I got to do incidental voices of some character that would pop up yeah um, and it was a test for me to keep coming up with some unique or goofball voice with a twist on it was there also a bit of that in the um, that one sort of human character in the in Ren and Stimpy who his role kind of shifted but he was that kind of he was either a salesman or an announcer, whatever kind of the story oh, suited. He, uh, yeah, he'd be a salesman. Yeah. And then he'd be, the screaming announcer is the only way I used to call him. And and I didn't want to do it, you know, like uh, the cliched version of it. Um, you know, new amazing products. Yeah. Or whatever he said, because that's what's from my childhood. And he sure looked like he could have been from the old days with that glob of Jarrus. <laughs> or, you know. Vitalis, uh-huh. end of one hair, that greasy hair gel or hair cream they used. Oh, that's what that was. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it was really cool. That was a wonderful character that they put together. And so what I did was I screamed it and belted it out with all confidence, except I put the emphasis on all the wrong words. Uh-huh. As if this guy, this idiot, didn't understand the text of, uh, the subtext of what he was saying. Yeah. Yeah. 
that was the only thing I could bring to it, and, and it worked for him. That was Billy West there, known I think now as one of the most versatile voiceover artists out there. And you can hear more of that chat in episode three of the Squiggly Podcast. And you can check out his work at billywest.com. Also, he has his own podcast with Jim Gomez, who we'll be talking to a little bit later on. That's at billywestpodcast.com. And certainly what Billy and John and various others who provided voices did so brilliantly uh, was sell you on the characterizations, no matter what scenario they'd be, like in each episode. And those scenarios, they would shift quite a lot. Well, in a way, that's where the, the, the Ren and Stimpy films came from, this old Warner Brothers mentality where the characters were just, they were like as if they were actors portraying whatever it is that was needed for the episode. Yeah. So long as he's, he's this erratic character, it doesn't really matter. And so long as Stimpy's the stupid one, they're the only really hard and fast rules. The rest of it is just fly by the seat of your pants stuff. And the, fil- the, the films were actually they were created in the old traditional way of, you know, a string of gags as opposed to a, a very tightly wound together script. Yeah, certainly it wasn't a dialogue driven show. Mm. Some of the dialogue was fantastic and certainly the, the vocal performances were great. But yeah, it was very much a kind of visual oriented series of adventures and things that they would be sort of thrown into. The premise changing from episode to episode, whether it be where they are in society, what time period it is, whether, you know, some of them are in space for no particular reason. Uh, yeah. Sometimes they're in the Old West. Sometimes they're animals. Sometimes they own a house. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. you know, they'll they'll meet the same character and it could be the first time they've met them. Yeah. Even though you've seen them, you know, a bit like, you know, one episode Daffy Duck just happens to be Robin Hood and he meets Porky Pig for the first time in that version yeah, yeah. of what Daffy Duck is. So you'd have, you know, the, these kind of first encounters with a lot of different characters. And uh, that was just a great, wonderful, freeform approach to take to story. It really sort of helped the show be this sort of limitless affair. And it would almost be, occasionally they'd sort of refer back to previous episodes. And that would be way more jarring mm. than them being somewhere completely different. Yeah. Like any sort of allusion to continuity would feel very odd. So yeah, it was just a, yeah, absolutely a kind of, um, one of those sort of early unabashed joys and a renewed kind of enthusiasm for the art of animation that, you know, as a kid, I'm just sort of developing approaches to drawing and how things are put together. And I think that the looseness of that was such a great place to start. I think it's the same for me when I was a kid and I first saw it. It was on BBC Two. I used to run home from school and watch that, followed by The Simpsons, early Simpsons. And I don't think television's ever been topped. Mm. (laughs) But we'd run back into school and we'd be singing from Ren and Stimpy. So we'd be singing Log to one another. We'd be singing Happy, Happy, <laughs> Joy, Joy. We'd be like, you know, acting up like the characters. You know, we took more from that show than we did from The Simpsons at the time. The, the lines that you wouldn't think would be eminently quotable, mm. but we would just do it anyway because that's what kids do. <laughs> and that sort of kid-like recitation. I'd just come in and just confuse the shit out of the teachers. We, we used to sing the Canada song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, someone's got beaver fever. <laughs> Poor flustered teachers. Like, oh my god, they're all so young. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, certainly the 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 elements of the show that, that lingered, like I was saying before, they were the the bits that kind of freaked me out. And I don't know, did you? Was there anything in the show that you kind of felt like really kind of hit hard and and dug into your brain and you couldn't shake? Well, I like the way that it was like watching a variety show. You never knew what you was going to get. It was yeah, it was just sort of a celebration. Absolutely, a springboard of insanity. 
And I do feel that whenever shows would kind of take a cue from it, they they never quite captured the same degree of, you know, absolute free-for-all, uh, unabandoned, you know, do whatever we will with this kind of thing. Even, you know, you'd get shows that were definitely in a kind of similar mold, but they just didn't quite have the same, yeah. like like something like Cow and Chicken or Cat Dog or, or you know, one of those shows that, you know, took a, a, the very similar premise. They would still make pains to have the action unfold in a world with some consistency you can't you can't bottle lightning that's the yeah but it's a show that also is incredibly flawed and i think that everyone would sort of agree with that one angle i guess about the show is that the only era of it that's sort of valuable is the first couple of seasons when john chris felucci was at the helm and then it took this immediate nosedive after he was removed from his own show Mm. Uh, and that is something I have contested since I was, you know, 12 years old. It became a different show. I would absolutely grant you that. But it didn't become an immediately inferior show. <clears throat> it adapted, actually, to a changing climate, I guess, a, a sort of more cynical world. You know, the 90s you know, was a very kind of cynical time. And there was something kind of strangely cathartic about that variant of the show, and then maybe it kind of overindulged as it went along where, you know, the premise of the episode would just be Ren and Stimpy meet people who just arbitrarily kick the shit out of them mm. and then they die at the end. Mm. <laughs> like sometimes that was used toward the end a bit more as a crutch. Yeah. But I felt that, you know, when there was a good sort of balance of meanness and unfairness, but then there would be redemption and payoff as well. And those were really satisfying episodes. There's a great episode sort of about halfway through the run that's sort of modeled on an old Hanna-Barbera cartoon. And it's a pretty established trope of like old-timey conquest-oriented animated episodes. They really want to get some food. You know, they've been wandering the streets homeless and there's a plate of skinned pig's faces (laughs) cooling on the windowsill. It's like, oh, we've got to get the hog jowls. And so they come up with all these schemes to get them and get past the baboon that the family have tied up in the backyard instead of like a dog. So each time they try and get to these hog jowls, the baboon will destroy them in some way or other. Their pl- you know, the plan will fail, basically. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty, it's a very sort of old as time almost cartoon storyline. But with this edge of, and it's going to rip your skin off. Or it's going to, you know, it's going to grind you into dust. or you know. And so finally, you know, they, they hatch the scheme that more or less sort of works. And they finally get the, um, they, you know, he Ren distracts the baboon. By pretending to be a girl baboon, he puts a little baboon hand puppet on, seduces the baboon, and so gets them married. And so the last scene is Ren and Stimpy feasting on the delicious hog jowls while the baboon is presumably f***ing Ren's hand <laughs> in this locked baboon doghouse. So they had the cut, that was the best they could sort of do as far as like winning. Yeah. That was a wonderful balance, I thought. Yeah. Um, and very kind of contemporary for the time. Uh, I believe that was a Bob Camp story. And on the subject of story, I think we should hear from our next guest, Jim Gomez, who had a couple of roles on the show, uh, had a big hand in the character creation early on. He did some work on it as a layout artist, but ultimately moved on to the story side of things. And now the way Ren and Stimpy approached writing was sort of a return to form as far as cartoon production went after that glut of 80s series that were oftentimes just sort of script-dependent toy commercials. Ren and Stimpy was the first in a good long while to have the art 
drive the story, and that definitely gave subsequent shows a green light of sorts to do likewise. So Jim was recently described by Bob Camp as the unsung hero of Ren and Stimpy, and his history with John Kay goes back to their time at college, and in fact, it's probably best to hand it over so he can tell the story himself. Here's Jim Gomez. I met John Chris Lucy in college. I was right out of high school. I was about 17, and, and, uh, and I met him at Sheridan College. We were both going, we were both in the animation division, of course, or program, and um, uh, I started hanging out with him then, and uh, he spent most of his time doing caricatures of everybody in the school and didn't really go to any of the classes, but uh, I was sort of gravitated. Actually, the thing that, that attracted me to him was he was doing this comic strip at the time, which was the, uh, they were like African-American Flintstones, black Flintstones that were naked from the waist down. And I thought, okay, this kind of interests me. So, uh, yeah, we started hanging out and so forth. And then he came down that we only both completed about, I think he completed one year of Sheridan animation. And he had gone to, he'd come from the comic. I think there was a comic program as well, comic book program. And then he actually come from an anthropology background or whatever. So he was, he was older than me, but Anyway, he came down to, he decided he was just going to come down to Los Angeles and get a job. And then he was bugging me and, and calling myself and Lynn Naylor, who was his girlfriend at the time, and this other guy, Felix, to come down, you know, he got a, and actually Lynn had come down first. And then we followed a few months later and they were kind enough to put us up in their bachelor apartment, which was really had no bedroom or anything. So it was really kind of a, a cluster situation. And, uh, you know, we, we were working together with, on a few different projects and like that. But at the time when we came down, we had, you know, when I met him in college, to back up for a second, we, you know, we started developing projects then in college and he had this idea, or actually this was other guy, Harold Duckett had this idea that there was a thing called the uh, mild man. And it was about this uh, superhero and it was pretty great. And we kind of started working on that myself and Felix and a few of the guys. And, you know, we were, you know, it was just kind of a, kind of a fun time. But anyway, when we got down here, we continued with that sort of mindset or approach. I mean, insofar as just hanging out and, and just developing stuff. I mean, we were so naive at the time, or at least I was to believe that we could just create a cartoon because cartoons were so terrible at the time that if we created a cartoon, God, somebody would buy it because everything else was so crappy. So, (laughs) you know, that was like the dregs of the world at the time. I mean, in in terms of animation, it was just, it was just desperate times. I mean, there really wasn't, there was a holdover. There was, thankfully though, I will say this, when I first got into the business, there were a lot of, uh, there was a fair number of old guys from the, from the early days that were still working well into their sixties and seventies. So I had the opportunity to be able to work with and, you know, meet and work with and a lot of, a lot of great guys. So that was kind of cool. But aside from that, you know, the stuff, the product that was being made was just really the worst. So anyway, we thought, naively that if we had come up with something it would be easy to sell and of course that wasn't the case but then we went on to work on mighty mouse together you know he and i for ralph bakshi and did all that stuff and and then at one point i was working at warner brothers on i think tiny tunes or something like that and you know i was i remember this distinctly i was i was sitting there looking at a hollywood reporter at lunch or whatever there you know they were all over the office of course that kind of stuff those magazines publications and in there, there was this small ad for this network called Nickelodeon that was looking for animation. They were actively looking for animation pitches. And so John had been on a lot of pitches up until then, you know, pitching the stuff we had developed. We had already, we'd already developed, when, actually, when I came down to back up for a second, when I had come to L.A. for the first time, he had already created these two characters, Ren and Stimpy. And at the time, Ren was like this character who would kidnap your baby and then hold you for ransom, you know. <laughs> and... And Stimpy really wasn't much of anything. And so when I came down, we started developing it along with Lynn Naylor and this guy Felix. And 
And uh, so anyway, when this ad came up, this was some years later, um, you know, God, what, 10 years later, probably, uh, you know, I said, I, I went over to John's place and he was living over in Encino or whatever, in some apartment, but whatever. Anyway. And I said, Hey, you know, check this out. There's this ad. There's this, there's this network called Nickelodeon. What's that? John was never, never into television. I mean, he was always, of course, well entrenched in animation and well-versed in all that, but television programming, other than that, he could, he, he, he hated. And, and he, he didn't know what Nickelodeon was. And I said, Hey, you got to take this, you got to take a pitch over there. You know, they're looking for stuff. So he turned around and went and they bought it, you know, Vanessa coffee. I think it was, she just bought the show. And, uh, and that's how it got started. I was still working at Warner brothers at the time and they went ahead and did the pilot. He and Bob camp and, and, you know, Bill Ray and a few people, uh, Lynn, Naylor. And then once, you know, they got, they sold the show, you know, he said, yeah, come on over. We got the show. So that's, that's how I got, that's where we got started. That's the long winded answer to your question. That's how I kind of got started with Ren Stimpy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, going by like online credits and stuff. So I'm not 100% sure how accurate they all are, but the impression I get is that for the first couple seasons, you did layout primarily alongside writing and then it became more just the writing. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, correct. I mean, I was actually, when I first started, I was started as, yeah, uh, it was doing it concurrently at the time, both writing and doing layouts. And in fact, my first job on Rinsippi was writing. Uh, I wrote, I don't know, two or three cartoons. And then, you know, then layout started, because as you know, as you probably well know, production, you know, you got to start with the writing. So as layout started picking up, then I got into the layout department and that. Because mm-hmm. had you done writing at that point, like for anything else or? Was that the first? Not officially, no. We I'd always written, uh, you know, in our own stuff, developing stuff together, and um, you know, I've still got a lot of early uh, typewritten notes for Ren and Stimpy and other projects as well. But no, not officially. I was not in the guild or anything like that, and I hadn't been doing any other writing cartoons. I had been sitting in some of the sessions with on Mighty Mouse. Again, I was doing. I was heading up a layout department there, and and uh, and you know, but I would. You know, that was a nice thing. That was kind of the philosophy that we had sort of championed or John did. And that was kind of the things that we sort of the ideas that we shared was that, you know, as cartoonists, you know, we didn't want to be relegated to one specific task. And, you know, there was kind of a lot of the creative activities were spread around, be it, you know, so so consequently, there were guys like Bill Ray would sit in on a writing session, for instance, or, you know, Bob Camp, of course, Bob was always involved with everything and, and as well as John like that. So, you know, it was always there was always that kind of approach anyway, that we would have shared responsibilities, but yeah, but mm-hmm. I never, but again, to answer your question, no, I was never really officially a writer until probably RNS, uh, when we were actually submitting scripts and all that stuff, or actually outlines really is what it was. Hmm. So yeah, with, was the story writing process beyond the outlines, was it then more sort of visually based or were there ever any actual sort of like written scripts like with dialogue and stuff? Um, you know, there was a little bit of script dialogue, but no, primarily, and that was, that was a thing that, uh, you know, we had adopted from the Warner Brothers cartoon. That was something cartoons when they were back in the forties, when they were making them, it was always this idea that, you know, you would do an outline and do the, uh, and really develop the the story more. So all the the particulars, the specifics, and, and, and especially the dialogue in the board, but in the outline, you would give definitely a template to all that, a blueprint. Um, and in a way to tell the story, you would have to, it was an easy way to, you know, transition stuff or whatever. So you would, in terms of dialogue, so you would include some dialogue into the outline, but, 
But for the most part, uh, you know, a lot of the finish writing definitely was done on the board. But, you know, the outlines were, and the cartoons were short enough to where the outlines pretty much uh, sufficed the, the, you know, the, the whole um, writing process. You know, you didn't really, really need a whole script. And, and, and quite frankly, that was something we sort of railed against. And it really was a, a byproduct of having started in the business with, with full scripts. So, for instance, like when I was doing storyboards or even doing layouts, but when I was doing storyboards or even animators, for, for that matter, everybody really resented the writing, uh, the writers or the script or, the, or the, 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 you know, the process that they did at the time, which was scripts, of course. And writers primarily at the time were not animation people. They were usually live action guys had segued into it or regular writers, whatever, kind of novel writers, whatever. So they didn't really have a full understanding of the, of, of, of writing for animation. So we were stuck with the task, we being collectively all the artists, whatever your job was, to illustrate this stuff that was many times impossible, pointless, or, or just laborious. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we always, that would drive us crazy. It's like, why are we, why are we animating the Spanish galleon, you know, going down a drain in 360 when it has nothing to do with anything, you know? So, mm-hmm. so that's kind of how, and, and John in particular was always really kind of, he was really adamant about that in terms of letting the cartoonist write. Now, mind you, I will say this as an editorial comment. Uh, that's not to say that every cartoonist is a writer and vice versa, but that was the approach we wanted to take was more hands-on. And, and I have to really give credit to John because that was something he had ushered, ushered back in at the time. It had been completely forgotten. Nobody ever did it. And we did it on Mighty Mouse, actually, when we first started doing that. And then, you know, that, and then tried subsequently a few other, I think, you know, there was uh, even on being Cecil, which was, uh, you probably don't know about it, but it was kind of a failed thing. And then, and then RNS picked up the same approach and, and, um, you know, really storyboard driven. Of course, today now, Pixar, whatever, I'm not quite sure exactly how they work, but, you know, the storyboard, the writing on the storyboard stage is just paramount to everything. You know, you may mm-hmm. start with a solid script, but when you get into the storyboard, it's really all about that. And the writing, and, and the writing is a big part of that, of course. Yeah, you'd worked on um, some stuff before, like some of the '80s, like series and franchises, which I would expect would have been very much a kind of script-oriented type of uh, things, like GI Joe. I can see here. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I imagine there'd be quite a big disparity between the production approach to the two shows. Yeah, absolutely. There, there was, and again, that was kind of what we railed against, and. Well, we always said, well, if we get our chance, we're going to do it the way we want to do it. And it was something we'd sit around and drink all night and talk about. And we wanted to ultimately kind of implement the, the, that kind of approach. And we did. And yeah, I mean, those productions, I mean, we worked, both of us worked at Chris Lucy and I and everybody else, Lynn, uh, all the early guys, we all worked at Filmation at one point, Hanna-Barbera, you know, the main, the mainstays that were around. And, you know, th- yeah, working from those scripts, that, that was just, yeah, it was, it was that was another world at the time, but I'm not quite sure how they do it now. I really don't know what Disney and a couple of the main studios are still doing day to day, but um, I think it's kind of a combination of both, but yeah. Hmm. And uh, you directed a couple of the episodes as well, did you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was, that was kind of a thing. I mean, as we got into when we were working, uh, when we moved studios and John and up the show, we were, uh, one of the things that happened in the first round you probably are aware of was that a lot of air dates weren't being met. And that's so crucial to any kind of production or anything for that matter. But I mean, for instance, when we were doing Mighty Mouse, uh, we absolutely delivered everything. We got all our shipping dates on time. We made all of our air dates. 
not to, you know, I, of course it had a lot to do with Ralph standing over us, threatening our lives, but we did. And, and, and as a matter of fact, and I'm, I'm almost, I, I'm, I'm very sure of this, that at the time we were the, one of the first studios that actually delivered everything, every production. We met every production schedule date, shipping and, and, and finish dates. And, and, you know, that was, that was kind of a, that was kind of a big deal, but, when when Nicola, the early days of Renna Stimpy, they were not making any of the, you know, we, they, none of the air dates were being made and all that. So there was a real problem with that. Of course, you start hemorrhaging money and you're spending too much on episodes and so forth, as you might expect. So when there was the second phase of it and we had moved and all that, there was a lot of pressure to get the stuff done on time. So, you know, I, I this is me. This is my big disclaimer, because I'm not entirely happy with the shows that I did direct. First of all, I wasn't allowed to, I, not allowed, but they offered me these scripts or outlines that had been approved that I wasn't too enamored of. But the deal was, oh, you direct these and then you can direct some of your own shows and all that. And so I did. So it was, that was kind of, you know, and I'm not making excuses. I mean, ultimately it was up to me. And then ultimately there was so much writing to be done that I never really got another chance to do any more directing. And, but you know, it was, I will say this, there was a few of us that really carried a lot of the load that allowed for people like Chris Riccardi and Tom McGrath and Mike Kim to do some really great cartoons. And it wasn't, mm-hmm. Hey, I'm, and again, I'm not saying that we were responsible for those, although we did, you know, we did some writing on them. I, I think I wrote a couple of them, but you know, part of what we did and what we were directing and doing these shows so fast allowed some of these other guys to really take their time and which is the way it should have been anyway. But Nickelodeon was really starting to pressure to get, and you know, it's the way, it's how it goes. Of course, you've got to make your air dates and you know, and you have fines and everything else attached to it if you're not. So you know, we were we were really encouraged and forward to do get that stuff done at on a certain time. So yeah, I ended up you know, that's my long winded answer to you to the directing. In other words, I I wasn't entirely happy, but I did direct a couple of cartoons, yeah, about what I did, yeah. Hmm. And sort of back to the, the writing a bit with um when it came to like the actual sort of like premises of the episodes, like idea generation, was that something you would have been solely responsible for as an episode writer? Like, you know, Ren and Stimpy are, you know, doing this in this situation mm. um, and they meet mm. these characters. Or was that something more sort of collectively worked through? You know, yeah, for the most part, it was collective. I mean, we kind of had a few different approaches. I mean, with 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 John early on, it was always there was always an idea, some kind of, you know, notion uh, or, or nugget or something that 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 seemed to stand out. Now, whether it was an individual or somebody would come up with it, you know, I think it varied. But but then we would sort of, it would evolve more organically like that. But overall, generally speaking, the way it would work was you were responsible for your premises. You had to bring in X amount of premises. Uh, then if they were approved, whatever ones were approved, then you would bring that to the writer's room and, and then everybody would collaborate on that outline and, you know, make notes on all that. You would, you would be, again, you'd be the point person, you'd take it back, work on it, implement it, whatever notes, and then it would go sort of back and forth. So, yeah, it was usually a premise was kind of an individual responsibility. And then from there, it was more of a group effort. But um, yeah, it varied a little bit here and there, depending on how, mm. you know, depending on whatever story it was. Yeah. yeah. Are there any episodes um, or perhaps experiences on the show that stick in memory as being like particular favorites? You know, not not necessarily. You know, the early ones were great. There were some later ones. I mean, I like I like a few of them. I mean, I think Man's Best Friend is considered probably a pretty great one. Yeah. I don't know. I never really thought about it. They're all pretty great. Again, even some of the later ones, like 
Tom McGrath's uh, Teenage Stimpy is a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not 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 necessarily. No. What I am sort of interested in is it definitely became a quite different show tonally in a lot of respects and like you were talking about with some of the certain directors really drove it in a very different but i i feel in some respects equally interesting visual direction people like chris riccardi mm-hmm. in a way that i think has had a big ripple effect on animation as a whole uh tv animation mm-hmm. certainly uh but from your sort of perspective were there any sort of major differences in how the production process was after John Kay left? Yeah, it was a little bit more uh, standard, I would suppose, a little more standard approach in that, again, we had to adhere to dates and things had to be delivered on time. And, and that was kind of one of the earmarks of a Chris Lucy production was kind of catch can. I mean, that wasn't intentional. It was just kind of all over the place. John was always of a uh, single-minded purpose. And so he, everything else kind of went to the wayside if he was, he, if he was dwelling or focusing on one particular thing and that was probably the main difference is where there's a little bit more structure a little more regimented after the fact less so in 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 the first the, the first phase of it mm-hmm. how was bob as far as his attitude toward the show to work for was it a very different kind of vibe or like a different sort of uh, type of show that he was making in his mind did you feel well, you know, he was under, when we did, when Bob was running it, uh, he was under a lot of pressure, again, getting back to the scheduling and, and production. He, that was something that, that I don't think anybody really, specifically a real creative mind, does particularly well under, at least not as well as just being, you know, responsible for creative things. And so he was wearing many hats and, and it was really shouldering a lot of the production, really as a producer. And he, you know, more of an exec producer and he really that wasn't his job description but he was kind of ended up being that as well as a liaison and between the artists and the network and there was a lot of i think a lot of extra pressure that was kind of you know tinging what was going on with him but but no creatively bob is a pure cartoonist Uh, you know he was one of these natural cartoonists uh, and i've mentioned it before and i think it's really true in as a matter of fact, I met Bob when we, we were both working at DIC. He'd just come in from New York or Texas. He's originally from Texas, and we were in the same room together. We put us in the same office. In fact, we were in the same, I don't know, we, we both got hired the same day, and so we met each other at the Human Resources office, and we were hanging out. We ended up being friends. But I, uh, as I did with a lot of guys I would meet in the industry, um, I would take them, once I, I was somebody like a Bob Camp, I went, holy shit, this guy's amazing. Uh, he needs to be involved with part of what, involved with John and I, part of what we'd always thought of John and myself coming out of college. And I was younger than John, so I really looked up to him and he was kind of a mentor in many ways. And, but my kind of, I felt my duty was like part of what my mindset was. I'd find these guys I'd work with at different studios and I'd bring them to John and we'd end up going to his place and hanging out all Friday night and Saturday night and get drunk and fall out of windows and stuff. But through that process, we ended up kind of collectively building this little group of people and, and this kind of art, uh, nucleus and, and Bob was definitely one of them. And, and he was one of these guys that could right away, you know, I just, you could just tell right away. He was for me. So there's a way, there's a kind of a two kind of different cartoonists for me. One is a guy who can just innate, innately draw funny, you know, and Bob was that guy. Every drawing he did was just funny. And it's not something you can really define or describe or other than just say funny. And you you can't quantify it. It's just a thing. There's just something about it. It's like the difference between a comedian that's just inherently funny without the written word. I mean, there's that aspect of it. Of course, is a big part of it. But 
but so he would draw funny words. John, and this is in my opinion, my estimation, John was different than that. And this is where they really complimented each other. John was uh, a real draftsman. I mean, he really had a sense of, you know, his, I don't remember, he would sit down, we, for instance, when we were at Filmation, he did a layout test at one point. He, he begrudgingly was going to take a job there because he couldn't do whatever he was pursuing. Normally he would do, at the time, I think he was doing just models for different studios and whatever. He would design models. Anyway, he was going to do a layout test. Or rather, he did, and he was looking to get a job there. Ultimately, he didn't take the job. But I saw him sit down, and he, would, he did this layout of He-Man, and it was some of the best fucking animation on that show that I'd ever seen. And he did it, and, and it wasn't anything. He didn't really excel or really aspire to do realistic stuff, but it was just the way his, uh, his mechanics, you know, his mind worked. He was just a really consummate draftsman. And so he was, and, and what complemented his style in that way was he was really, he was really obsessed with this, uh, dramatic the dramatic side of comedy if i can put it that way and bob was the opposite it was all it was funny drawings and he was really into the funny part of it i mean john was don't get me wrong john was always going for the joke but this is where they really complimented each other so well and and i think equally you know maybe john maybe it doesn't seem like john is really i don't know i haven't talked to john for years but but maybe it, it, it might seem that he's not so close to the to the property anymore but I, I i don't know that that's true i know he's really george licker is a character he I, he seems to to push and champion all the time by the way that was a character that we that actually i created with john when i first moved to la there was a liquor store called george liquor and it but so yeah th so those characters and i think maybe just because they're maybe not so much free and clear i guess they would be but and uh, legally i'm not sure but they seem free and clear of nickelodeon so those things and by the way and george liquor is just a great character i've always loved him but I don't think he, he necessarily likes Ren and Stimpy any less or is any close to them. But Bob has, and I talked to Bob recently uh, some months ago, and he was saying he's kind of intimated, you know, intimated the same thing to me, that it was he wanted to kind of keep the characters alive. And I don't think he, he personally has to do that. I think they kind of live on their own. But he, loves, he likes the idea of being able to kind of shepherd and, and steward. He, he feels himself sort of a steward some kind of stewardship towards the, towards the, those characters. And, you know, that's kind of a cool thing. I mean, he, uh, why not he than anybody else? I mean, he knows them so well, but yeah. Mm. I guess also it's sort of elements of the, those shows that are there that weren't there in the first couple of seasons. Like I think certain characters would have been sort of created after John Kay left. Mm. And uh, I see them sort of crop up in like, you know, commissions and stuff that he does. And in a way, it's almost mm. like the the second phase of Ren and Stimpy has an almost a sort of spin-off element with the sort of new characters brought in, <laughs> in the absence of like characters like George Licker, for example, who I, I guess uh. we didn't see again after John was gone. Um, then you'd have the Scotsman and um, Wilbur Cobb and various others. Right. And it becomes a whole sort of different ensemble, I guess, to work with. Did you ever find, was that sort of a big consideration from the writing standpoint was to give sort of newer characters attention? I think maybe possibly it might have been just a reaction to probably trying to distance some aspect of the show from John because at the time, and not to get all into all the, the, the mess of all that stuff, but he was really uh, railing against what was going on in on the show and all that other stuff that you probably know a little bit about. But but so maybe it was a reaction to that, um, maybe conscious or subconscious. I don't know, but, um, but it wasn't really an edict or any kind of, you know, stated objective, but yes, uh, 
there, you know, looking back for sure, and I thought about it, there, there was an effort to, to kind of to do other characters. And that's, you know, and that's probably more of a natural, as much a natural outgrowth of just the creative approach. I mean, there's always, you always kind of want to do that. And by the way, I, I, I'm not going to digress, but in some ways it's kind of bad writing in that if your main characters can't really carry the show or you don't want them to carry the show, then it becomes this parade of secondary or, or guest stars, mm-hmm. which always seems to be an element of any kind of show. But, but I don't never, nevertheless, I don't, I don't think that it was a, a specific approach, but it, I think it's part of the natural process of just doing cartooning and stuff. You kind of just look for more silly stuff to do. And, and, and in, in many ways, the characters, I would have loved to have done George Licker, but it was, in fact, I wanted to do more George Licker, but I remember, I, I don't know that it was Bob, but it might've been the network or something. It probably wasn't the network, but anyway, there was a conscious decision not to do George Licker. And I'm like, oh, what the fuck? I mean, that was a character that we had come up together where it was one of the ones that I had created with John or, or I created and he drew it and we did it together and they weren't having it. But I've always liked that character. I wish we could have done more of him, but, but um, yeah. Certainly it felt like there was a, a, when everyone kind of came together, certainly those, those sort of first few years on that show and possibly because of the elements of chaos or whatever, but you really, it really worked very well like the end result once it was eventually finished. Those were some really quite strong pieces of work. You know, that was the thing about Ren and Stimpy. You know, it was, and you've heard this before, maybe maybe you think this, I don't know, but I do believe it was, and as animation is, by definition, it's a collective effort. And, and it was really, and that kind of, that's even more true of RNS and some of the stuff that we did, Ren and Stimpy, uh, in that we were very conscious of that. We wanted to include everybody in every aspect. Not to say we used everything in every aspect, but everybody was part of the collective creative approach. And, you know, Bob, uh, Bob Jakes, you know, amazing timer. I mean, he would take these layouts and there was a lot of fussing and a lot of, you know, laboring over these layouts and finessing and all that. But in the end, it still stuff had to be timed, for instance, and it had to be timed right. And, you look at some of that anima- animation and that when Bob was an absolute perfectionist when it came to timing and animation and he would, you know, he would make sure every goddamn frame was working. From your perspective, again, like how, cause you've been working, you know, obviously since then in the industry and has Ren and Stimpy had like a visible effect from what you've seen on how TV animation is approached and produced? Well, initially, the big, first big effect was people went right back to doing the outline and storyboard-driven shows, and that was unheard of at the time. And like I mentioned, we were doing a Mighty Mouse. There was actually, at one point, there was a, a friggin' a van of old-time animators came to the studio and wanted to see what the hell we were doing because the word had gotten out. It was the weirdest thing. We were up in North Hollywood in the dregs of some industrial area, you know, and far removed from everything. And these guys showed up one day, and... And, but yeah, I think that starting with that, that whole storyboard driven approach. Now, mind you, there's still, I don't know to what degree percentage wise, there's still a lot of script driven, but there's a lot of, and there has been since that day, a lot of outline and storyboard driven animation, which we always thought was kind of the way to do it. Beside, aside from that, yeah, there was that initial flush after RNS where there were just, every show was a copycat show of it. It was such and such and such and such. And it was just wacky characters doing stuff. You know, and 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 a lot of them were, were pretty good. You know, uh, so there was that direct impact afterwards. In terms of long term, you know, I, I, I guess I'd have I haven't really thought about it, but it, you know, certainly I think it inspired. It probably inspired a lot of young artists to become animators and to get into cartoons. Because when we got into the business, again, it was dead. Nobody gave a shit about animation when we showed up. 
and we, I mean, you know, the guys around the same time I was in it, not just John, but, you know, and John was really the spearhead in, in some, in some regards in that mindset, but it was just, you know, it was always this thing. Cause we had, I remember seeing uh, Ralph Bakshi at a dry, Ralph Bakshi film. I think it was one of the ones Coonskin or something at a drive-in in Canada when I was a kid um, in the summer, we couldn't see it. I couldn't get in cause it was restricted. So I was in, out in the cornfield somewhere watching through this fence when I was about 11 or 10 or 11. And I mean, to me, it had seemed that was one of the things that we thought of. I kept thinking the whole time as I got into animation, as I came to LA, it was like, why doesn't people, why don't people do more crazy stuff? You know, why are we just seeing this, whatever it was, Harlem Glo- Globetrotters animated or Pac-Man or whatever the hell it was. It's definitely has impacted. I, I wish I could be more specific about maybe I'm sure it has in, in many ways, but I think the biggest probably impact is that it's just inspired a lot of people. I mean, I know, you know, I'm doing currently doing a, uh, a podcast with Billy West right now. We, you know, I, I co-write it and put it together for him and I, I'm kind of like the straight man on it, but through that it's been more of my exposure. I mean, normally I'm just doing animation, whatever, but now I'm having a little more exposure with the fans, you know, out there, Billy's fans, of course, but they extend to RNS and everything else besides Futurama and everything else. And, you know, there's just, it's time and time again, and Billy will concurs and, and also told me this, that when he goes to these conventions, it's just, you know, it still has a really lasting impact. And, 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 and usually the common, ex, you know, experience is, yeah, you had such an impact on me as the, the cartoons did, and it inspired me to get into animation or inspired me to do a voice, be a voiceover guy or whatever. So I think it kind of really ushered in a kind of a, a real creative surge there for a minute anyway. I mean, that coupled with, you would know, of course, you know, Simpsons, uh, Roger Rabbit. I think those were the three. At the, they were kind of around the same time, and I think collectively those. It was it was it was kind of parallel or a zeitgeist. I mean, it was you could, it was going to happen because animation is such a great medium. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just that you know the RNS and 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 that was part of it for sure. Uh, do you find yourself? Have you worked with um, other artists from the show since, like over the years? Uh, a little bit, not so much. I mean, a lot of them I don't even talk to so much. As I said, I got in, I did get into post, and it was really I was doing audio again. I was doing mostly writing. I was doing a lot of writing for overseas, some studios overseas in France, primarily, and another, and doing industrials and commercials and that sort of thing. So I had kind of left the studio system. I just wasn't. I was never really interested in working at Disney or even you know I did all, all that when I was younger, and then before on this, and then after that, I think. You know, it was just, I couldn't, I don't know. I mean, I, it's probably to my detriment, but I should have stuck with that. So most of those guys, I mean, you know, all their histories, all these guys have gone on to do really great things. I mean, I haven't, I probably talked to Chris Riccardi a couple of years ago and I, I do, I keep in contact with Bill Ray. We're good friends and, and, um, uh, we work together on a few things. In fact, he's helping me right now. We're putting together a project that, uh, that we still can't talk about, but it's a thing that we're doing together with a bunch of other guys. And so, yeah, but generally speaking, no, I haven't really worked with, aside from, from Bill, probably not so much. And some guys I haven't even seen at all, but, uh, but I, I know of them. I mean, I bump into them, whatever, uh, Charlie Bean, I know he's doing, you know, all these guys have gone on to do really great things. That was Jim Gomez reflecting on his time at Ren and Stimpy. And among his various current projects, as mentioned there, he works with Billy West on the Billy West podcast. Again, you can check that out at billywestpodcast.com. So we were talking before about how episodes would combine these great story concept with bizarre, visceral visuals. Were there any episodes that stand out in your memory as being prime examples of that? One of the episodes I remember got me in the... In the it actually got me in the jaw was uh, 
the one where Ren's teeth are falling out. Oh, yeah. And he has to put his nerve endings, he pulls his nerve endings <laughs> out of his head, sticks them under his pillow. But it's that that ridiculous. And whenever I have two fake now, I imagine. <laughs> that, oh, yeah. That's how I feel. That's what I imagine. Well, remember when I was bitching about my wisdom teeth a few episodes ago? Oh, yeah, yeah. That episode was so fresh in my mind throughout <laughs> that whole ordeal. There's a bit where he just has, before he, he is actually ripping out the dangling nerves, <laughs> exposed nerves, where he just has the toothache. And that's just animated brilliantly. Yeah. That throb of just unfair pain. Toothache is like when it's really bad, if there's like an infection or something that really needs to be done. That is a, a an angry, mean-spirited pain <laughs> that your body will whip up for you. And that was animated so perfectly. Yeah. And just one static shot of Ren's face just all sad while his tooth is just like throbbing. You would never see something like that in Rugrats. <laughs> so, you know, and yeah, that, that visceral quality of the shows was just absolutely tremendous. Mm-hmm. And I think certainly, again, it was, a, it was a different approach they would take before and after John Kay's involvement. But certainly both approaches I felt worked. I think maybe John Creasvelucci's, the psychology of John Creasvelucci's episodes, there was more of a psychodrama element to them. Very old kind of like film noir type or b-movie almost tales of psychological torment and terror ren would lose his mind and he would plot like he did just snap and he'd plot like how he's gonna kill stimpy for like seven minutes <laughs> in the moonlight and he's just watching Wait. stimpy while while he sleeps yes just one twist <laughs> he's miming <laughs> snapping his cute adorable cat friend's neck it's a saturday morning cartoon <laughs> It comes from that tremendous sort of man's man's world that John Kay has has created and and, and kind of placed Ren and Stimpy in this kind of overbearing masculine environment. And I completely got it after meeting him, uh, John Kay, at Annecy this year. And I went out to shake his hand and he nearly crushed the life out of my my hand. And I'm thinking... Hey, how you doing? Yeah, how you doing? (laughs) And I was like... And I remember thinking, this is why he hasn't finished Cans Without Labels, because every time he picks up his Cintiq pen, he just pulverizes <laughs> it, like a big pile of them. But yeah, this kind of macho environment that they all kind of exist in, such a great cartoon. Oh. That would definitely sort of represent the um, the antagonists of Ren and Stimpy's world. Mm-hmm. So you'd have the you know, very kind of brute force, manly, manly men, the fire chief who for some reason has a pathological uh, hatred toward midgets, <laughs> which back then was a perfectly okay word, I guess. It's weird because there's one episode, it's called Circus Midgets. And uh, the last time I saw it on TV, which probably would have been about 10 years ago, they actually had to like remove the word midgets from the titles. Oh, wow. So it was just called Circus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, the, um, there was one episode where yeah they... they go give a, a fan of Ren and Simpy goes wins a contest so they go visit the fan and the father of this kid is hugely overprotective and sits them down by the fireside and just scares the bejesus out of them <laughs> and um and then George Licker of course yeah, yeah. who is the character that John Kay's held on to like grim death and you know that character will never die even though the uh, the voice actors passed on that character is you know absolutely indefatigable in fact it's high time we actually heard from the show's creator john crease felucci it wouldn't be a ren and stimpy podcast without him and here are his own remembrances of how george licker came to be and he's a character that's that's been with you for quite some time right 
Yeah, George Laker goes back to uh, the same time when I created Ren and Stimpy, about 1980. Mm -hmm. So he, he was one of the main characters in the original Ren and Stimpy pitch. And I took the show around um, all through the 80s to all the networks, to NBC, ABC, CBS, all the Saturday morning cartoon networks. And uh, they all thought it was crazy. Mm -hmm. and I actually got thrown out of NBC one time. They got the security guards. <laughs> they grabbed me and like hauled me out of there. Was George looking more of a focus at that point? Was well, he was one of the main characters. He was Ren and Snippy's master. Uh -huh. So, uh -huh. he, I mean, you know, one of the first stories that I, that I wrote was called Wilderness Adventure. Right. And it was where George Licker takes his dogs, Ren and Snippy. Uh, George doesn't uh, get cats. Right. He just thinks it's a weird, funny-looking dog. So he calls Snippy, uh, he calls him Rex and Champy. Oh. <laughs> he takes them out to the wilderness. George gets sick of the soft suburban living. Mm -hmm. He looks at his, his gut and he's like, oh, getting soft. Gotta get out and be a man! Uh -huh. Run the wilderness and survive! And I'll bring my dogs with me! He loves dogs, right? Uh -huh. So he takes them out into the wilderness and they rough it for like five days. They get lost in the wilderness. So that was a, one of the first stories and that was one of the ones I would pitch to everybody. I actually have uh, Bob Jakes and I, Bob Jakes is a great animator from Canada, a friend of mine, one of the main animators on Ren and Snippy and uh, he, uh, his studio, Carbuncle, animated um, all the best episodes. Uh -huh. Anyways, long before we ever actually animated Ren and Snippy, he and I were just driving through Van Nuys and um, we drove by a liquor store. They had this giant sign, giant neon sign. It said, George Liquor. And I, and I, made, and I screamed, Bob, ah, stop, stop, stop. So Bob <laughs> screeched to us like, what, 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 what? And he looks over and it's like, whoa. He starts laughing his ass off, right? And I jumped out and I took a picture of it. And uh, I made Bob like, drive home to, to a little apartment I was staying in. And uh, I quickly sketched up this bug-eyed guy with buck teeth and, and a shotgun out in the middle of the forest, beer cans all over the, littered all over the floor, you know, shooting up the whole uh, wilderness. And that was the birth of George Licker. George, that was actually the only time I ever instantly thought of a character, knew exactly what he looked like, and knew everything about him. It was just something about that sign. It was a little tiny liquor store and a huge sign. And you know, this guy instantly popped into my head. Hmm. Just exactly the way it is. I just knew everything about it. It was weird. I mean, he sort of binds the whole Spunko universe together in a way. Like he keeps popping up and he's sort of the, the main constant, that kind of force of nature that he is. Well, I, he's also uh, got a lot of traits that my dad has. Uh -huh, uh -huh. He's like the American version of my dad. My dad is a real manly Canadian dad. George is like a manly American dad sort of character. Uh -huh. so they have some differences, the same differences that the general Canadian has with the, the American. I mean, you know, he's from the greatest generation. Mm -hmm. George Licker was in the big one. The war of 1978 between Canada and the United States. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Before they started having wars over oil, they had wars over beer. Because right. Canada has much better beer resources than America does. American beer takes a piss. Canadian beer is a real thing. That's a man's beer. Uh -huh. So George's neighborhood that he lives in is called Decentville. And it's the last decent place in America that isn't corrupted by modern culture. Decentville is right on the border between Canada and the United States. And there's a big fat dotted line, like on the map. Uh -huh. And there's bushes all around the dotted line. And George is always peering over the bushes. You know, uh, see what those dirty commies are doing in Canada. But really, he just wants to sneak across and buy some Labatt 50, which is the world's most manly beer. Uh -huh. You can't even get it in the United States. 
It's too manly. <laughs> so George, you know, he was part of the war where the Americans wanted to steal all the all the Canadian beers. You're going to have such a huge backstory behind that. You know, is that sort of help like really solidify when you're doing something with the character and you know so much about his history? It's all kind of worked out. Well, not with all my characters. Ren and Stimpy don't have much of a backstory. Uh-huh. You know, George is a little bit more in the sitcom world than Ren and Stimpy. Ren and Stimpy was sort of half cartoon, half sitcom. Mm-hmm. George Licker is maybe, you know, 40% cartoon, 60% sitcom. Right, right. So there's, I wouldn't say he's totally grounded in reality, because obviously we do crazy cartoon jokes that you can't do in real life. Yeah, I guess because he's human, he has more, more of a backstory. Uh-huh. I don't always use it. I just kind of know it. Yeah. And they did always work together very well, the episodes with, with him. And I guess there were only a few in the end where he would be their master or he would sort of have them, you know, by his side. Always had a great kind of dynamic. Like, he did slot into that world very well. Well, the funny part is they, they hated him at Nickelodeon. That was the, one of the characters. I mean, they loved Rand Stimpy. Uh-huh. And they liked Mr. Horace. But they hated George Licker. So all through the first season, I was not allowed to do any of the George Licker cartoons. And we had storyboarded out Wilderness Adventure. Jim Smith did this magnificent, epic storyboard, and uh, they rejected it, which I, you know, we, we couldn't figure it out. It was like one of our best storyboards, but they just didn't like the character, I, I think because he was too manly and too Republican. <laughs> For some reason, they thought George Licker was a threat to everything that they held dear. They didn't, they didn't get the satire. Of it. You know, George Licker's a little bit like Archie Bunker in, in uh, All of the Family, where, you know, it's not really condoning Archie's behavior, it's making fun. Do you think maybe they weren't giving a younger audience credit to be able to d- determine the satirical elements? So I think kids are actually quite astute and they can sort of work that kind of stuff out, but I don't think maybe network people give kids like credit to be able to sort of determine, okay, this is a farcical character and this is a serious character. They thought he was real. They thought George was real. And mm-hmm. I think it's because you know, because we draw so many of the expressions and all the expressions are custom made yeah. in our tunes, it seems more real than it, just an abstract written character. It's like hard to explain. But right. We made a cartoon called Man's Best Friend, mm-hmm. second season. Like I talked them into using George the second season because in the first season, there were some cartoons that they wanted me to dump that turned out to be the most popular cartoons. And once that happened, I went back to them during the summer between the two seasons. You know, now that the show's a big hit, can you trust me a little more to do some of the stuff that you're worried about? I mean, you guys rejected Stimpy's invention over and over again, and it's one of the most popular episodes. Mm. So they said, yeah, 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 John, you've proven to us that you know you know what you're doing. So I said, can I bring back George Laker then? And they were like, mm, well, okay, I guess so. And the dog show, mm. which they were crazy about, but they, but they aired it. And then we did Man's Best Friend, which was my favorite, and that one, they just freaked out. I, they, they couldn't take it, couldn't handle it, even though they approved it at the uh, at the storyboard stage and the layouts and everything. Once the film came back, it was so intense that they looked at me and they said, well, I couldn't even imagine it was going to be like this. And I said, well, every one of these poses is in the storyboard. But, they, you know, it's not the same thing as, I guess, reading a storyboard and seeing the finished film where it has the music, it has the animation. Like the sound effects maybe as well kind of add to... Or would yes, that have been there fact, in the beginning? It's the whole experience, right? Yeah, yeah. And we played with everything. We didn't just write a script and then have the characters stand there and read the voices. We, you know, we, we add, we, we take advantage of every uh, aspect of, of the cartoon, including the sound. We really worked on sound as much as we worked on, on the picture. 
Mm -hmm. So when you see it all together, it's pretty intense. So they reject it and they wouldn't run it. It was banned for years and years. And, you know, I used to run it at uh, festivals, atomic conventions and stuff, movie theaters, and people always went nuts. There's a scene in the, near the end where Randa has a fight for its liquor. And, it, and we did it as sort of an homage to uh, Raging Bull. as a slow motion black and white scene in it and everything. Where Ren hits George with a horror. It's animated by Kelly Armstrong. It's just on, it's really good animation. And we played the slow, the sound effect of the hit in real slow motion to it. You just see his head twist around with all these cracking noises in it. When that runs in a movie theater, people stand up in the middle of it and just start screaming. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. And kids love it too. So we finally released it um, on the Ren and Snippy DVDs. But even there, they hit it. It's like you have to hunt around for it. It's an Easter egg or something. It's hard to find, but it's, it's on there. It's a very popular episode. That level of, I mean, violence is the word, but it's it's with a cartoon that it never gets to the point of like you know, it's not like you're putting no, it's a kid. slapstick. It's like yeah. prestigious violence. Exactly, and uh, and and the funny part is the parts that that the network hated the most are the parts where the audience cheers. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's just amazing how. Networks really don't have a connection to the audience. They mm -hmm. really don't know what the audience likes, and they, you know, they keep handicapping like, the creative people who live to entertain an audience. It's just, it's just weird. It's yeah. a weird situation. That was Ren and Stimpy creator John Kreese for Lucy there on the origins of George Licker, a character known for the abuse and torment he'd put Ren and Stimpy through, which didn't really make it to TV that much. There was only really one George Licker episode that actually aired at the time. But the one that was like the big controversial one that um, uh, according to John was the one that was the last straw and got him fired because he kind of stuck to his guns and was absolutely unmovable on it. Uh, that one I don't think aired until like 12 years ago when he put out the adult Ren and Stimpy. It was a man's best friend. Yeah. To be honest, that was the highlight of the, the adult Ren and Stimpy series was this old episode of the original Ren and Stimpy hmm. because it had become this legendary lost episode. And it was a strange thing that the adult series in general, this for people who, who don't know it or weren't there at the time, he got the rights back to the characters about 10 years after he was fired, did a mini series for the Spike TV network, which, you know, was, it was odd. He, he said at Annecy that he didn't really want to do it this way, which I found interesting because I don't think he'd ever said that before. Uh, but basically the idea was bring Red and Stimpy into a world college kids can enjoy. So put in a lot of naked ladies and sex jokes and drug jokes or whatever. But that audience would have grown up really into college kids, as one presumes. Well, I mean, I was that audience and I was, mm. you know, I was, yeah, college age when the adult party cartoon, which was the name of it, uh, aired. And one episode I thought was quite strong uh, because it wasn't really about like naked ladies and, and gross out jokes. It was about Ren being a psychopath. It was called Ren Seeks Help. And I felt that that, that most sort of represented what I kind of had in my mind of what an adult version of Ren and Stimpy would be. But every other episode just sort of succumbed to a lot of sophomoric humor that doesn't really work as effectively if it's so, like, overplayed. Mm -hmm. And certainly one episode very, very explicitly puts Ren and Stimpy forward as uh, a couple. Actually, a few of them do. Like, they're, like, now husband and wife or husband and husband or whatever 
you know. It's that kind of Morecambe and Wise-esque couple. Well, I don't think Morecambe and Wise ever actually f***ed. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe there is a lost episode somewhere. <laughs> but there is, there's like a scene in one of the episodes where they actually are like, you know, they're under the covers and they're having sex. And I'm like, well, I, okay. I, I could sort of see how that would be sort of funny if that were maybe more of an innuendo. It loses, I guess, the humor when it's in your face in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, I felt the same way about like the the rather gratuitous naked lady oriented jokes. Like they kind of felt a bit belabored, I suppose. Mm. I probably would have found it actually perfectly acceptable at twelve, <laughs> like at the age when I would have been watching the original Nickelodeon show. Uh, but I think for people who had actually you know grown up. I think maybe that kind of thing was being done better by shows that were you would think would be worse shows, like Drawn Together. Or South Park, you know. What South Park was up to already at that point was already, I think, a little more sophisticated. Not animation-wise, but in terms of the construction of that kind of joke. That was among the sort of disappointments of the adult revival series. Mm. But there is some great art in it, you know. It's a show you could maybe sort of put on and skim through and... You know, you could take certain sequences and stuff, and they're pretty strong animation. It feels very different from the olden days. The art, the art really stands out. When when you come and think about the, the particular the close-ups, the jaw with the throbbing tooth, or like they'd look at, you know, Stimpy's eyes and they'd be all, you know, gooey and everything. People now refer to that as if that was the, the genesis of when, you know, where, where cartoons came up. But that was actually from the old... Looney Tunes cartoons when Daffy Duck used to get his disintegrating gun out or they'd open a box and something would be inside of it and it was like a close-up that's where that's where that originally came from because Ren and Stimpy took that idea and plussed it like you would not believe it became oh yeah an emblem of the show it became it's kind of that's what everyone points to and go yeah that's classic Ren and Stimpy dice it was definitely the angle of let's take this device from that era and but specifically use it to showcase deeply unpleasant levels of detail. <laughs> yes, you know, and that was definitely. I think that element of it certainly was what got picked up by other shows. Never quite as effectively, I thought. After Renaissance, like you would identify, like that was where it came from. But there was just something about the quality of it that, and that certain like the needless addition, like you say, like you know, gunk in the corner of the eye, little pimples, ingrown hairs, mm-hmm. earwax. Just wonderful stuff. Some really sort of great like paintings that you can find online. Best sort of resource for that, go to a website called Candy Cane Land. And that's the artist who did most of those. And he's got some really gorgeous scans of those uh, paintings up. As well as amazing backgrounds and stuff he's worked on for other shows as well. Uh, a guy called Scott Wills. So yeah, I think the um, that psychodrama element of Ren and Stimpy definitely... Uh, was the the thing that made it stand out beyond the art as something that would kind of stick with you for a few days. Mm-hmm. And it was effectively done also after John Kay. And there was one episode that gave me like nightmares for like longer than it probably should have because of the concepts that it dealt with. It's called Hermit Wren. And this was the first episode of, I think, the fourth season. So it had been off the air for a, a couple of months. So I was really looking forward to it. Oh, Ren and Stimpy's coming back. And the first thing that strikes you about this episode is how different it looks. And it was directed by a guy called Chris Riccardi, who has remained one of my favorite artists uh, from the show. And what this show established wasn't just a kind of new approach to the design of Ren and Stimpy, 
but it really set in motion a design style that you would see in so many other shows since then, like Gendy Tartakovsky's work and Craig McCracken's work. Very modern, very effective as far as, you know, how to create visuals quickly and on the fly. There's a certain inconsistency, I think, in this particular episode where sometimes sequences will be very detailed and very much in the vein of the older episodes of Ren and Stimpy. And then you'd have shots that are just really rudimentary and basic, but the design is so well done. Mm. But the story itself is just nightmarish. And it's just Ren's life reaches an absolute nadir living with Stimpy and he's had enough. So he's like, screw it, I'm going away. And he goes to live in a cave to become one with himself, basically, and realizes that he's the last person in the world he wants to be alone with because he's a f- nut job. And so Ren on his own becomes just this incredibly creepy character that lives amongst his own hallucinations in this cave, starved of food and, you know, delirious, and he'll look at his hands and the skin will start dripping off it. Yeah. F***ing terrifying. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, whenever this would have been, 1995, I guess. So it would have been like 11, 12. And I think, I'm not sure if I was freaked out by the visuals, which are pretty freaky, or just, I think maybe the concept... Because these were concepts that people like Stephen King would write about. Like the way that loneliness becomes the greatest horror of all. Mm-hmm. So for a concept like that in a, in a Saturday morning cartoon, or in our case, a Tuesday evening cartoon, even still, um, it was before the watershed. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty rough one to deal with, but it became like one of my absolute favorite episodes because it bothered me so much. And it was a kind of like, I, I kind of wanted to get to the bottom of why I found this premise so upsetting Mm -hmm. and also there was a quality of the design that is found very appealing even though it was so not what Chris Felucci had established with the show initially and then what then started to happen with the fourth season I think more than anything was each episode would be like it would go from director to director so people who were working on different areas of the show they get a crack at directing an episode and you'd get these tremendous variety of, of art and design styles from episode to episode it was like a showcase of like modern animation and i loved that element of it as well it was like oh what's Ren and stimpy gonna look like next mm-hmm. sometimes it wasn't that great like sometimes they would shepherd out the actual animation to the studios that perhaps didn't have the um the skills to take it on there are a couple of episodes that just look really really rough and patchy that probably looked quite good in animatic and storyboard phase but you know they just kind of misjudged who they then got to to do the labor of it yeah so in that respect, you know, the, sometimes the inconsistency of it wasn't uh, as fun, but it was certainly interesting. And it was something that I, I don't think you could get in any other show that wasn't on the air for like 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. Like you could, I've noticed now the last couple of days, Channel 4, they're showing a whole bunch of Simpsons over the years. So you go from like season, I guess, like 17 to season two and, you know, hugely different design style. Mm hmm. But, and writing style and everything. Yeah. But you only have that with, you know, the, the 15 years between mm-hmm. of adaptation and evolution or de-evolution. So for a show to, like, have that level of change from one episode to the next within a season, that was sort of unheard of, I think. Or sort of previously kind of unseen in that kind of TV show. I loved it. I thought it was it was. I loved the chaos of it. I guess. Hey, it goes back to the well, the variety and, as you say, there the chaos. Uh, rather rightly, it's uh, something for everyone and uh, something to put everyone off the dinner. Exactly. Good for BBC to put it on at like six in the evening. 
Yeah, yeah. Because I, I remember being like, you know, like my little, little thing of total ladies and then Wilbur Cobb's flesh would peel off his <laughs> face. But, oh, cheers, Wilbur. Sometimes it's good that people don't understand what animation is and just think it's cartoons, so we'll stick it on it. <laughs> we'll stick it on while everyone's having the dinner. I mean, it worked for a while, didn't it? And it, 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 sort of the wheat from the chaff, like definitely as it went on, there were a lot of kids in the schoolyard that tapped out. Like, oh, yeah, I saw that at Ren and Stimpy last night. Yeah. Don't think I want to watch that show anymore. Because <laughs> someone had been burned alive or torn to pieces or horribly mutilated. Uh, so let's bring out another guest, someone else who I was really happy to get to chat to, as I've been a fan of a lot of his stuff uh, post-Ren and Stimpy. This is Stephen DeStefano, who's worked on all sorts of great stuff. He started his career very young on the show. He's since worked on stuff including The Venture Brothers, Paul Riddish's wonderful new Mickey Mouse shorts, uh, Story Call with the Rouch Brothers, who we had on the podcast earlier this year. Uh, he's worked with Gendy Tartakovsky. He does comics. He does graphic novels. A really fantastic body of work. And on Ren and Stimpy, he did a whole bunch of stuff from backgrounds to story art to layouts. And that's all we'll go into. He'd come back to the show pretty much throughout its entire run. So let's hear from Stephen. Sort of roughly whereabouts in the show's run were you brought on board? It was quite early on, wasn't it? I was actually brought on, I guess, uh, it was technically for season three, uh, uh, season two, I'm sorry. Um, I was, yeah, uh, the first six were done, um, they went really well, and then, you know, um, they were calling the next, the next go-round season two, and so Bill Ray was, uh, you know, there from the beginning, and, um, or pretty close to the beginning, and I knew Bill from DC Comics and uh, from when he lived in New York. And he called me and he said, you know, they're looking for talent. They're, they're just open to portfolios right now. Um, John wants to expand. Spumco's going to get bigger. they got a lot more cartoons to do. They need a lot more talent. And do you want to submit a portfolio? And so at that point, I realized, I mean, I grew up drawing comic books. You know, when I was a little kid, I thought I was going to draw Batman. But, you know, by the time I was 20, I realized that was never going to happen. And that really, that wasn't my talent anyway. I, I was much better at, at humor. And drawing humor in comics means that you don't make any living at all. But I always loved animation. I always thought I'd wanted to get into animation. And this seemed like a perfect opportunity. I didn't really know the show. By that point, I might have seen a little bit of it, but I just was not watching cartoons at that point. So I was sort of aware of it because it was getting culturally big. But um, I figured, well, yeah, okay, let me let me submit my portfolio, and I did. It was a pretty ragtag portfolio, but it was mostly comic book stuff and licensing stuff that I'd, I'd been doing. I'd drawn a lot of Mickey Mouse, and I'd drawn a lot of Bugs Bunny, and I'd drawn a lot of Popeye licensing by then, and um, I guess, you know, John liked enough what he saw. I was had the feeling that he wanted to, he, he thought, like, I'd be useful someday to expand into, oh, he'd be good for licensing, oh, he'd be good if we did comic books, and I, I always got the feeling I was I was hired because of that. So, yeah, and so I was, I was hired. I was, uh, I got a call from Libby Simon, who was the producer at the time, and I was told I would be a board artist. I was told I would be a, I'd be a storyboard artist, and so that's. Um, and then you know I planned to move out to LA, and because I was living in New York at the time, and where I grew up, and I moved out to LA. So were you storyboarding from the beginning, or was it more sort of layouts to begin with? I was I was nowhere near boards right. <laughs> when I got there. <laughs> I understood that I was hired as a board artist, and you know it was. 
I mean, looking back, it was certainly, you know, better that I was not boarding right away. Um, I did a lot of things, actually. My first job, when I first got there, I was I was a background designer. Uh, they put me in the basement <laughs> at Spumco, where there was no one else, except, I think, Doyle, who was doing the animatics in another part of the basement. But, yeah, I was... I was in the basement by myself, and Bob Camp came downstairs, and he said, I got backgrounds. I need backgrounds for my cartoon. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing uh, In the Army. And, like, you know, I, I don't do any of that fancy shit that John does. I'm just doing, you know, down and dirty cartoons. I got to get it done. And I was like, okay, yeah, I could draw backgrounds because, you know, I could, I drew comic books. I could draw, I could draw whatever you needed. So, yeah, for the first week, two, couple weeks. Um, I was a background designer, and then I was told that I was going to become Mike Fontanelli's assistant uh, on layout. So they moved me from the basement upstairs into Mike's office, and boy, that, that place was so ramshackle. It was just, it was falling apart. But um, yeah, so then for the next couple months, I was Mike Fontanelli's assistant. Um, and that was a tremendous education because I'd never, I didn't know anything about, uh, layout. I'd never done any sort of animation before. And so it was extremely hard. It's to this day, I still use what I learned, um, from Mike and I never want to do layout again. (laughs) It's, it's, it's really hard. It's much too hard for me. But I still do, you know, when I did boards, when I eventually got to do boards, I did pose to pose and I did, you know, and expressions and all that kind of stuff. It was really integral. Um, acting was integral to, to layout. I mean, also, it, you know, layout is, it's a lot of, well, your volumes are changing. Well, why did the character slide suddenly? Well, you know, it's a lot of pinning down stuff, which is much too technical for me because I'm just a stupid um, comic book artist. But, um, but yeah, it was a tremendous education. And then, like a month or two after that, Mike said, you know, you should be, everybody in the studio was bringing their backgrounds to me to, to draw. Not everybody, but a lot of layout artists were bringing their backgrounds to me to draw because I happily drew backgrounds. I, I, it was the one thing I felt confident there. I didn't feel confident drawing the characters. I didn't feel confident having the characters move. But like, yeah, you want a background? I could draw a background. And at some point, Mike said, you know, you should just be the background designer. Nobody here wants to be the background designer. Why don't you be the background designer? And so, you know, uh, I, so I became a background designer. I was, I was the head I was the only background designer under John uh, at Spunko, and um, yeah, that lasted for another month or two, and and I had enough of that, and then I, then I split. Hmm. At that point, would Bill Ray and Scott Wills were they ever doing like backgrounds as well? Yeah, I mean, Bill and Scott and Glenn Barr were the were the background painters, and so they needed someone. Um, all of them, I'm sure, Glenn, all of them, really, were, were uh, you know, qualified to design the backgrounds, but, um, but they were painting, uh, so they needed someone uh, as the between um, from layout to, uh, to paint, to actually draw the things. So I, I was that person, and, you know, and then, you know, I did, I did my stuff, and I was still learning at the time. I mean, it was pretty difficult and I didn't know what I was doing and I wasn't really able to give John what he wanted and I wasn't, Bob was a little easier to please, thankfully, but, um, it was, it was a pretty difficult go, but yeah, I was, I was a between guy. I was the guy that drew the stuff and then Bill and Scott and Glenn for a while, Glenn left 
early on too. But um, yeah, the, they they painted my stuff and they made they made the stuff really sing. Just to clarify a point you made uh, just before that, you said you you left. Yeah, Spunko was a difficult place for me. I um, I had never worked in an animation studio before. I started my career as a teenager and comic books, which means I sat in my mom's basement and then later on my own apartment by myself for years drawing comic books. And so I was very much used to being alone. So being being in a studio environment was very new to me. And Spunka was a very particular studio. <laughs> it was um, unlike any studio I think I'd ever been in since because I've been in a lot since then. And so it was a little overwhelming for me. I was I was kind of underqualified and overwhelmed, and um, it wasn't a good fit, uh, particularly at Spumco. Um, by that point, I really liked the characters, and I liked a lot of the people there. And but uh, I was I was just not at all happy. Um, you know, I'd moved three thousand miles. I don't know where the hell I was. All kinds of stuff. I was young. I was stupid. So I you know I thought. Like, I'm not happy here. I'm just going to, you know. And I, I really didn't. It was clear to me John was not happy with what I was doing. So I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to stay in this situation. I mean, I've been, I've been making a living, you know, on my own drawing comic books uh, or, or whatever. I'll just go back to that. And so, yeah, after, I think it was about four months. It might have been a little bit longer. But I feel like it was about four months that I, I was at Spumco. And then, yeah, I just went back to drawing comic books. I quit. I went back to drawing comic books, living in L.A., and then and doing licensing. I always had a lot of Popeye the Sailor work. Uh, by that point, that was, that was a big bread and butter thing. And then two months after that, you know, John was fired. Nick took the show over. So that was a big thing. And, you know, suddenly I was getting a call from Bill Ray and Bob Camp, and they were saying, you know, come on in. We, we, still, we still need you. We still, we still need a background designer if you want to be the background designer. And I, you know, I love to learn. It's, you know, if I'm not learning, I'm not happy. But it was really, really extremely difficult for me to learn at Spumco, uh, particularly under John. I was just not used to or comfortable with the way John was comfortable with teaching. But I was very comfortable with the way uh, Bill and Bob in particular, um, and some others, uh, Chris Riccardi, I, I was very comfortable with the way they were they taught. I could learn from them. And so I was happy to go back to, to Ren and Stimpy. And I went back with the idea that someday I'd be, I would be that board artist that I moved out to L.A. to be. And eventually I was. It took a little while. Um, maybe, um, I think we finished up season two. And then there was a little bit of a down period. And then when I went back, yeah, I, I negotiated to be a board artist for season three. And that's that's when I started boarding. And one of the things I really enjoyed about uh, Thad's book was the sort of explanations of why or how certain episodes looked a certain way. There were some really quite nice breakdowns of like episodes and the talent involved, and then like episodes that were started and then finished after John Kay was fired. So right. they were these kind of like patchworks of, of something that he began, and then other people sort of came on and finished. Certainly, I, it always seemed like they were successful, just uh -huh. watching it as a show. There was definitely a sense that you know the show was going under a sort of new look, uh, mm -hmm. You know, Ren's voice obviously was different. But going back after John K was fired, what would yeah. you say were the major changes uh, in like how a the production was run and b like the attitude that Nickelodeon had toward the show as a whole? 
Well, yeah. I've been on a couple of productions like this. Um, I mean, you know, John John was Ren and Stimpy at, at Spumco, um, and nothing happened uh, without John, except unless it was on one of Bob's cartoons. And I guess Vincent also had some... Um, had some leeway too to get his his cartoons done but uh but i think bob was the b unit and bob got to do whatever you know he needed to do to get cartoons out but everything else was if john john had like a million things on his plate and if john couldn't pay attention to a certain thing things didn't get done uh and then we nickelodeon formed a studio around us you know and um it was like right now you guys deliver and so it was all about delivery I feel like we were still gung-ho to make really good cartoons, that we were given uh, a certain amount of leeway to make good cartoons, looking back. But yeah, our, our thing, and I think we all agreed, like, you know, we wanted to deliver. We wanted to produce. We wanted to make stuff. We didn't want to sit around, from my point of view, um, to either get depleted or to wait for perfection to happen. We we were gung-ho to, to deliver. And... Um, yeah, it was it was very much um, about let's deliver. Let's, you know, from Nickelodeon and from us, you know, where are the cartoons, we're producing the cartoons. That that was the agreement, I think, between uh, the games artists and Nickelodeon. I think that was the major difference. There were just no holdups. I mean, there were still a lot of big personalities of games. <laughs> and um, there was some drama, too. But everything was about getting it done. Uh, and I personally, you know, I, back then that would have been a dirty thing to say. But, you know, I'm an older person now. And, you know, I like when things get done. You know, we were not waiting for perfection. We tried to get things as good as we could. Some directors had more leeway to get things more perfect than others. And I think that was great. But they were none of, nobody was unreasonable. Everybody wanted to get things done. And, um, yeah, we tried to get things done as well as we possibly could. Were you on until, like, the end then, throughout the whole rest of the Nickelodeon run? Yeah, I was. Um, my role changed a bit. I think I pulled some sort of dramatic move over, looking back, there, there's a lot of unnecessary kind of drama. But um, yeah, I got into a kind of a snit <laughs> about, what, which cartoon? Sp Scotsman in Space, I think. Oh. And it wasn't going to happen the way, not just me, but several people thought it was going to happen. Ultimately, it kind of did, but I, I thought it was it was a good opportunity to make a, some sort of political stand, and so I quit um, after Scotsman in Space, and then I quit, and then I did some boards for some other productions in Los Angeles, and then Games called me, or Bob called me, or someone called me and said, hey, we got this really good story, do you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, okay. And then I was just, I was working till the end of the original series, but I was a freelancer. Um, I don't know why I did stupid things like that. But um, there's a, like I said, there's a whole lot of stupid things that were done in that production. But yeah, I was, to answer your question, I was on till the end of the fifth season. <laughs> in those sort of later episodes, um, one of the things I do remember being brought up from someone who was talking on the DVDs, although it escapes me right now, but they were saying how there was a sense that the last few there was a feeling that, you know, it was more about, like, getting to the finish line and just making sure the content was delivered. Was, did you ever get that sense when you were on it? 
Yeah, I mean, I uh, yeah, I got, I got the business sense. Um, I, I personally, I mean, it became a big production at that point, and they were. Uh, I remember offices of people that I'd never seen before. Uh, board artists and directing teams were like shipped in from all parts of the United States and all parts of the world, I think, mm-hmm. and and the with the edict get this done. And you know, I do I do recall that um, yeah, there like I said, I didn't even know who some of these people were, and they were they were working on specific episodes, and um, I'm not I'm not even sure I've ever seen them, but uh, the, those episodes, but. Uh, but yeah, there there was like this this uh, big push. Like my feeling was that uh, you know, because I might not have been there to see the day to day operation, but I feel like when when I visited stuff like I got the feeling like yeah, they things just needed to get done. I do recall people were pretty tired by that point too. Last couple cartoons. Because um, by that point, I I was doing everything practically, uh, not everything, but I. Um, but I was still designing backgrounds, and I was still boarding, and I was cleaning up boards, and I was cleaning up layout animation, and um, I was all over the place, and I was helping Bob on a lot of things. Everybody was just helping everybody else, but there were still specific directors, and Bob was just exhausted. He was like producing cartoons out of his garage, and you know, he, he it was practically like he had nothing left. It was amazing. There was a lot of fairly heroic maneuvers. <laughs> by the end I think thankfully the individual artists the individual directors um, you know they they have their own specific deals and um, Bob probably took a long time I can't remember what his last cartoon was I remember it was being pretty funny Stimpy's Scooter or something Um, but yeah yeah there was still some good stuff done right up to the end I think Hmm. it's interesting you mentioned uh, Scotsman in Space and I remember that one as a kid, finding it quite endearing. I could, it was it was one of the perhaps idiosyncratic episodes in the sense that it was very frenetic, very frantic, very uh-huh. kind of, a lot of ideas that kind of led to other ideas. Yeah, uh, and I, I, my memory of it is like it was they had released it uh, on a VHS alongside the space one that John Chris Felicia had done. Oh, really? I think it was all the ones where they're space adventurers. And so okay. there's like three or four episodes that are Spumco style Ren and Stimpy's. And then all of a sudden, it's like three, four years later, and there's this one, and such a, a cosmic disparity between uh-huh. what the show was, you know, from one era to another, which I always uh-huh. rather liked. But I, do, I did find myself kind of weirdly drawn to the ones that were kind of, I don't know, calamitous, I guess, in a good uh-huh. way. There was something quite appealing about that, or the ones that were sort of troubling. That we kind of, you'd walk away as it, you know you'd have this kind of crisis <laughs> a little bit. It's uh, hard. It's hard to explain. I think, but like yeah, no. I mean, I you know I I I think I understand what you mean. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, yeah. I mean, I like I like things that are unsettling. I, I like things that are leave you confused and bewildered and and depleted. Uh, first time I saw Harvey Kurtzman's art, I was like, I don't know what this is, but. But it's upsetting me, and to this day, I still love that. <laughs> I still love that aspect to it, and um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of half-baked stuff, particularly it seems that I boarded, because <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like Scotsman in Space. There was a very concerted effort to make that unsettling and uneven, and uh, kind of not 
making sense. And that's part of what I quit about. We had a very big meeting with the Nickelodeon executives and Bob and Jim Gomez and I talking with them, which was probably not a great idea to retain that feeling about that cartoon. I think it did. I don't remember anything big coming from that meeting. But, um, but yeah, so that was one of the cartoons that kind of settled itself. I can imagine so many of them would have been a lot of fun as far as the layout goes like and the design side of things. Putting the story to one side even like... And also, like I mentioned earlier, like the overall effect I feel like a lot of those shows have had on how a lot of animation shows sort of for kids and teenagers that are in the late 90s and up till quite recently were structured and laid out. Um, yeah. And the approach, I think, to editing and, and pacing and stuff like that, like it really seemed to kind of set a tone that like sort of era of the show. My kind of theory about Ren and Stimpy, it sort of feels a bit like the Twin Peaks of animation in that it was, it had its issues and then, but it really paved the way for a lot of shows to kind of then pick up a certain approach to structure and gags and things like that. Right. But all of the kind of mistakes have been made. Uh-huh. So then, you know, so with Twin Peaks, which was, I, I feel, a very patchy show, but I enjoy elements of it. But then you get stuff like The Sopranos years later. Right. And I think Ren and Stimpy kind of paved the way for a lot of stuff. I'm not sure if this if, if this is his attitude about it, but like a lot of Gendy Tartakovsky stuff on some level, mm-hmm. it feels like he kind of stepped in and, and really sort of appro- embraced a lot of the positives and a lot of the practical elements of design and character development and episode structure and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, I, I, I do agree. I mean, a lot of those guys... Um like Gendy and Paul Rudish and Craig McCracken. You know, these these were the guys who were uh, in CalArts or just graduating CalArts and seeing their friends work on Ren and Stimpy. Guys like Chris Mitchell and Don Shank went to school with those guys, Gendy and, and uh, Paul Rudish and stuff. And so I think, yeah, I think um, Ren and Stimpy was a kind of a thing that kind of went along with their idea of what cartoons were. So I think the guys, the CalArts guys who graduated and sort of formed Cartoon Network or Cartoon Network was formed around them. I mean, you'd have to talk to those guys, obviously, but I do, I do think like there was, uh, there was a big influence. I think SpongeBob is kind of a child, much more successful child and a much, and I think a much better figured out child of, uh, a much more grounded child of Ren and Stimpy, but still, you know, I, you know, for what what SpongeBob stuff I have done, I use my Ren and Stimpy muscles on that. You know, these days I work on one of my jobs is uh, working on uh, the Mickey Mouse shorts uh, for for Disney. And Paul Rudish is the director producer, and I feel like my my Ren and Stimpy experience still plays into that, which is crazy. It's twenty years later, but um, or 25, 20 years later. But yeah, there's still that uh, influence going on. I, you know, I think with John and Bob and Jim Gomez and Jim Smith wanted to do were regurgitate Tex Avery and Bob Clampett cartoons for a new generation, and they did it in a way that made sense to them. You know, and I think it changed and informed everything after that. And I think people are still doing sort of Tex Avery, Bob Clampett gags. But it filtered through Ren and Stimpy because that's what popularized it again for the for the last twenty years. Um, mm. That's that's the way I feel about it. I, well, I did really enjoy the um, the overall approach that those Mickey Mouse shorts sort of took 
like kind of marrying the older design era of Mickey Mouse with the kind of newer animation sensibilities. Yeah. I thought that was a very watchable end result. And I, I, I don't know if there was any sort of resistance to it, but I remember like, you know, whenever like a new iteration of a classic character comes out, I think like whenever someone tries to redesign Looney Tunes, like they get a lot of flack. Yeah. But I remember finding those like a really nice series of like, not the sort of, completely classic Mickey Mouse that everyone knows, but it was something that kids, I think, could watch. Uh, but it has a nice sort of, like, there's a certain intensity to it, Yeah, I guess, that I, I definitely felt there was a, a Ren and Stimpy vibe bubbling away somewhere. You know, yeah. There was something that kind of had filtered down into that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, Mickey probably screams more <laughs> in, mm. in these shorts um, than I think he... I don't know if he ever screamed in a Disney short. He probably did, but he, he screams and does takes. I'm sure, you know, he never did a Tex Avery take. If he did, it was very mild in, uh, in you know, any Disney shorts uh, from the classic period, but he does takes continuously now. So, yeah, I think this is just the idea of what cartoons are now. And, uh, you know, Paul was brilliant. I mean, I think, you know, yeah, I'm one of those people who c criticizes every time and fetches and, and complains every time Warner Brothers does something new with Bugs Bunny because Bugs Bunny to me was perfected in the 40s but um, yeah Mickey Mouse was perfected but Paul is not doing that Mickey Mouse Paul's doing a different Mickey Mouse he's adapting the character he's putting the character in a in a space that's not uncomfortable it makes sense but um, yeah he's uh, it's it's not recreating anything it's creating something new I think that's why I don't complain about Paul's Mickeys anyway <laughs> Bugs Bugs I'll always complain about <laughs> always something that I came across of yours sort of by chance was uh, the, the Bill Ray, the Hellboy Jr., oh. um, the Wendy and Casper comic in particular, yep, yep. which I uh, I don't know how rather I, I came across that one, but I think I just sort of happened upon it in a shop once, and uh, it's a very interesting book. I really enjoyed that story. Oh. I guess he did. If I remember right, Bill wrote the whole thing, didn't he? Or that is correct. It's like a collection of like little sort of short stories. And Do you know sort of how that whole project came about at all? Uh, probably. Bill always seemed to have a fascination with little hot stuff. Uh -huh. uh, Harvey character. I remember that going back to Ren and Stimpy because, you know, I boarded... I don't think Bill wrote it. Jim Gomez wrote it. But I, there was a short, there was a Ren and Stimpy quote-unquote commercial called Cheese Fist that I boarded and I designed Cheese Fist and I envisioned him, I think pretty much everybody envisioned him. I think Bill was going to direct that. I think that's how that came about. But I boarded it. Jim Gomez wrote it. And I, I designed the character and I thought, oh, he's probably just going to be this white, milky character. And Bill immediately made the character red because Bill was directing and Bill was also color, color designing the entire little short. And um, yeah, Bill and I got into a fight about that. Or Bill cursed me out, which he was very upset about afterwards. I will say he was extremely... He was extremely sorry to me that, uh, that he cursed me out um, because I said, you can't. I said, and I said it very bluntly to him. I said, you can't make the character red. And he said, go f*** yourself. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I think he was trying to recreate Little Hot Stuff with, with Cheese Fist. Little Hot Stuff is a red character. So uh, anyway, so yeah, so he had a connection to Mike Mignola and he pitched this idea 
And then he asked me to work on it, and I don't know if he pitched Wind Wheezy, the Sick Little Witch, to me, or I said I'd like to draw Wheezy. I don't know what which one it was, but it was his character. And I thought, yeah, this will be funny. And I, you know, I just thought you were supposed to draw it in this Harvey Comics style, because I thought that's what everybody was going to do. And it turns out I was the only one that did it. I was the only one that drew it in a Harvey Comics style. But um, yeah, that was a fun. That was a fun story. There's another story. The one that's probably better, actually, is the second from the second issue, which is Huge Retarded Duck. Oh yeah. Um, Bill wrote that. Bill came up with that. And, uh, that I probably drew. I didn't draw so much in the Harvey comic style. That was kind of my Spumco style. It was very kind of Spumco, Ren Stimpy style. But those, yeah, that's all. That's all Bill. Hmm. So yeah, have you worked alongside any other like Ren and Stimpy artists since the show ended, as well as Bill? Well, when Ren and Stimpy ended, uh, I thought, right, I'm just going to move back to New York because I didn't uh, feel like I found my home, my place in Los Angeles. And then Lynn Naylor said, are you going to move back to New York? Because I'm going to work on this Felix the Cat show and I'd like for you to be my assistant director. And I was like, well, I can't move back to New York if I'm going to got the opportunity to be Lynn Naylor's assistant director. So I stayed an extra six months in LA just to work with Lynn. So I worked with Lynn. Who the hell else? I mean, Lynn and Chris Riccardi, um, about 10 years ago, they had a, uh, a pilot for Nickelodeon. It was called The Modifiers. It's a very beautiful cartoon. It's a strikingly beautiful cartoon. Um, I worked on that. What else? Oh, my God. I feel like I work with these guys a lot, but not so much. I work with, sort of with Bob Camp now. Bob lives in New York now, and he teaches at the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. And I, I started teaching the School of Visual Arts as well last year. Um, so I've gotten to see more of Bob than I have in the last 10 years. Bill had a pilot called King Crab that I worked on. That was a while ago. That was 10, 15 years ago. Scott Wills, I guess, quite a bit. Um, I'm on at least three Gendy productions <laughs> right now. And, you know, Gendy's one of those guys. I mean, his, his story is that he blows his conch shell and all his team arrives, you know. And I'm, I'm fortunate to be one of Gendy's team. Um, I'm, I'm either a board cleanup guy or, a, or an anchor or, or a designer for Gendy. And so, um, and Scott Wills is one of those guys. Scott Wills is probably the guy. Scott Wills is, Scott Wills hears the conch shell blow before anybody else. Because I think Scott has his own conch shell or something. So, so he, that's how important he is to Gendy. So I'm working a lot with Scott Wills uh, in the last several years. Um, and that's great because Scott's not only one of the horniest people I've ever met, but he's, uh, he's easily one of the most talented guys uh, I've ever run across. Um, I run into Vincent Waller every now and then, and Vincent's such a great guy. And Vincent's, Vincent was always one of the most level-headed people I think I've ever met in animation. As we ran into each other at the watching Mad Max, of all things, last time I was in L.A. So, and we talk, we, we chat occasionally online. You know, I was just thinking today, it's like our generation's Rocky and Bullwinkle, you know. Uh, it's, it's that moment in animation where there was a shift. Um, and, you know, Rocky and Bullwinkle wasn't, I, I could, really couldn't speak too much about Rocky and Bullwinkle, but it was a, it was a hugely influential show. And, um, you know, it changed animation for a while. And I think Ren and Stimpy is one of those shows. And, 
you know, how lucky I was to be on a show that, uh, I mean, I've been fortunate to be on some really good productions, I think, but, um, yeah, Ren and Snippy was one of those real highlights in my career, I would absolutely have to say. I'm, I'm super proud, I, I, you know, uh, to have been part of that crew. Stephen DiStefano there, and I think you'll want to check out his work at stephendistefano.tumblr.com. He's also on Twitter, at sdestefanoster. So one of the other reasons I really wanted to put together this special, because, you know, again, it's not necessarily um, the event of the season, uh, but I've wanted to talk to these people for so many years. Um, it's just finding, like, an excuse to get them all together and talk about this particular project. Mm. Um, so I think that, you know, 25 years is a pretty good hallmark. And hopefully there are people who are listening who maybe they're aware of the show, never fully kind of took the plunge. Maybe felt that it was a little um, too old school or too old hat. I know it's a hard sell as a show. I've definitely felt that firsthand. I do think that as a case study uh, of animated TV series production, it's one of the best ones. And that's why I recommend Thad's book to everyone, uh, because it's such a great account of like everything going horribly wrong. And yet something grows out of it, mm-hmm. you know, out of the chaos and out of the detritus. Some amazing things poke their heads through. I really don't think animation would have been the same, like the the TV animation landscape, certainly from the States, without this show. That's uh, Thad Komarowski's uh, Sick Little Monkeys. Yeah. And uh, Thad, of course, was a, a guest in an earlier episode of the podcast, talking about the book and the process of putting that book together. So it's always worth um, giving that book another shout out. And I love a good book about like a film or TV debacle. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I love those kind of memoirs. They're great. I don't know if you've ever read The Disaster Artist. Oh, that, the guy who did uh, The Room, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was, that was, oh I was just so happy just throughout <laughs> reading that book. If anyone who knows The Room knows what an what a absolute calamity it was. So the making of it was, is it's almost more satisfying a read as the film is as a watch. John Leguizamo has a great memoir of like the films that he did as a kind of struggling actor and what a pain in the arse he was there's uh what, like the sweat box as well and the sweat box is brilliant yeah disney documentaries that have been that have been made uh dream on silly dreamer and waking sleeping beauty which is slightly more angled towards uh towards disney's favor but there are some great documentaries and it's always nice to have a little look behind the scenes isn't it and to hear from yeah. the people who uh were part of that madness that chaos that whatever it was that created the the final wonderful product I think that because Sick Little Monkeys is so, it's a real good oral histories book. So it's not just Thad's interpretation. It's a lot of direct quotes from people who were involved and who were there. So it's it feels a lot more authentic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I said at the time, and as I maintain, although some people refuse to come round to this, it's absolutely not a John K. Bash fest. It, you know, it's it's the, the most humanizing account of John K.'s working practice I've actually read. Which, you know, doesn't mean he comes off as flawless, but he does come off as a human being. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of the people in the John K. camp are really resistant to that notion that there could be anything by way of idiosyncrasies. In a lot of respects, the you know real genius is about taking risks that don't pan out. And I just don't understand that resistance. Like how you were saying just now about the sweatbox. Why would Disney want to keep that under wraps? It presents them as a group of fallible people who are trying their best, and they're making mistakes. And, and, and in doing so, it adds more interest to the actual to that particular process. And, uh, and it's a great watch. It is. Certainly. 
So let's hear from our final guest in this Ren and Stimpy celebration. And as an animator myself, this was another real privilege to get some time with Bob Jakes of Carbuncle Animation. Bob, along with Kelly Armstrong, I would say, were responsible for some of the show's most jaw-droppingly brilliant animated sequences. And if you enjoy yourself some fantastic 2D animation and want to treat yourself, look up Bob Jakes Animation. Jakes is spelt J-A-Q-U-E-S as well as Kelly Armstrong animation. The videos on YouTube, someone's compiled an assortment of isolated shots that they took on. And if you're familiar with the show, I guarantee there'll be a lot of your favorite moments in there. And certainly the ones that linger in memory as being above and beyond what anyone would expect to see in a TV show, especially at the time. Uh, so yeah, Carbuncle, they're a big part of visualizing Ren and Stimpy during the Spumco years. And they stuck around to finish their work on the remaining episodes after John Kay had been removed. And I would say that if I were to pinpoint one regret or issue I have about the game's era of the show, which, as I've said, I do still find hugely impressive for a multitude of reasons, uh, it would be the absence, I suppose, of what Bob and Kelly brought to the table. Uh, Bob's working relationship with John also goes back pretty far uh, to their time at Bakshi Productions. And, uh, well, let's have Bob take it from there. So um, as far as, like, the Ren and Stimpy show when that sort of came along, you'd had a bit of um, prior work alongside John and Ralph and that sort of thing. Yeah, case. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so one early project would have been the Harlem Shuffle video for the Rolling Stones, right? Uh, yeah, and I think the album had just come out previous to that and uh, John had done the cover art for that. And then so I guess Ralph had struck a deal where where he could do a, a video to accompany the release of the album. Single, I mean. I don't think there was an album. Yeah, yeah, I actually uh, saw it quite recently again at Annecy. They played a sort of retrospective of John Kay projects and a sort of, um, he did a little presentation there. Um, and so they had a bunch of little uh, clips of stuff that he'd worked on before, sort of over the years. It was interesting. Uh, what did he show from Mighty Mouse? Or did he show anything? He showed um, the Alvin and the Chipmunks parody one. Definitely there was a quality about that one watching it now like you could see the seeds were being sown for yes, what was yeah. what was to come well john likes to describe mighty mouse as a template for ren and stimpy it kind of worked out the bugs or, or tried to work out the bugs and 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 mighty mouse there was a lot of problems one being that you were sending this uh, this these really lively drawings that demanded animation to an animation studio that really didn't know how to handle them and and that's one of the things with working with John's layouts and drawings is there's a certain amount of life they demand. And so when we got to Ren and Stimpy, in fact, when he first called me about Ren and Stimpy and he started sending us layouts and stuff, he, he went, look, this is going to be exactly like Hanna-Barbera and you, you can expose it on eights and just make it really limited. And, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, why? You've got these drawings that are just packed with energy. And they demand to be animated. So me and Kelly just went ahead and did our thing. And I think there's only a couple of scenes where they actually did stuff on eights or exposed stuff on eights. There's, I know one scene in particular where they're looking up to the sky and um, their pupils are growing big. And, hmm. But that's the only one I can think of where he actually worked to his, that specification. Hmm. Certainly the, the quality that seemed very familiar was the very, very well-timed dynamic sort of pose-to-pose -pose animation Yeah, that really kind of helped carry the story and the emotion across. And that I definitely 
yeah, see as like a sort of template for what would later be expanded on. Well, you know, certainly in that sort of first year or so of Ren and Stimpy, there was a lot of similar visual stuff going on there. Well, in the early days of, of sort of sending uh, work overseas, it was almost like you you set things into a formula because you knew that they could follow that formula. And if you tried anything outside of that, sort of what you knew you were going to get back, there was an air of danger about it because, you know, it could be subject to retakes. And um, I know there's a lot of studios that put a cap on the number of retakes. So if you get a, if you, if you stray too far and you get a show that comes back and it's a disaster, it's, you know, it's the old fix it and post hmm. thing. So uh, from that sort of point on, when that show sort of reached its conclusion, what was the sort of journey from your perspective from that to Ren and Stimpy? Was that, do you know if that was an idea John had had for a while or whether it was something that was sort of purposefully developed for Nickelodeon? No, 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 no. He had been trying to shop a lot of ideas around for for years. And then I think it was... uh, they got a meeting with Vanessa Coffey and she picked Ren and Stimpy out of the group mm-hmm. uh, and, and wanted to to make that into a series. So you were involved in the that first pilot short, Big House Blues. Right, right. It was a pretty visually groundbreaking show in many respects, aside from, you know, the sort of foundations that had been laid with Mighty Mouse. Compared to other shows he'd worked on before then, was it like a big, was it a very new thing to be working on as far as television was concerned? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, the one great thing about working with John on Ren and Stimpy was there were very few limitations. There were certain disciplines that you had to stick to, but he wouldn't say, no, you can't put this on ones. No, there, you know, you can't use 10 drawings or whatever. You know, you can't use secondary action. He didn't put any restrictions on that. The only thing was you had to, you had to. Um, well, he would pitch. Generally speaking, when we were doing a, a show, at least in the first season, he would he would call me up and pitch the show to me, and I'd write notes what he was looking for in particular, and then I would go and time the thing, and then I would pitch it to the animator, and they'd get the layouts and the timing, and they would work with that. Mm-hmm. And was that process sort of carried through to the series once it was picked up? Well, with, with the pilot, John looked after all the all the pre-production stuff and we just animated. But when the series started, that's when I started timing the animation mm-hmm. for in-house use. And, oh, and I did I did some shows that went elsewhere too. Um, at the at the beginning of the season, I went down to California and, and helped them startup so i worked on a lot of episodes i was never credited on but i didn't do a ton of stuff in those episodes kind of just getting it kick-started so that we could start you know it, it was all contingent on getting enough work together so that we could start in vancouver mm-hmm. but we started using animatics in the second season which were kind of because they were i think the first one was made on an atari computer if i recall correctly mm-hmm. But they were kind of like guidelines. They weren't locked down. Like today, when I get an animatic, they're pretty much locked down. And then I can I can shuffle things a bit, but I don't I don't have a lot of leeway. In Renaissance, if I wanted to open something up, it wasn't a problem. I could I could take as much time as I wanted to, or and then, and then John would deal with it on his end. But the whole point was to make it work, and then whatever extra footage or whatever needed to be added would be looked after by John. Mm-hmm. When John was gone from the show, 
it was that around the time you guys stopped working on it as well no we we finished out our contract mm -hmm. and that took us into raw canadian kilted yaksman uh -huh. and we did, we did a powdered toast man short that went with that episode and um when it switched over to games i think it was partway through son of stimpy right okay that's the last one i actually worked with john mm -hmm. on and then with kilty jacksman they just handed it to me and they said just do it uh -huh. pretty much even though um you know chris riccardi was the actual director on it certainly it looks like that that last crop of shows were absolutely some of the most sort of visually well done episodes of Ren and Stimpy. And there was definitely a, I think a, um, uh, a zenith uh, as far as the overall visual quality, like Kilted Yaxman. I remember there are sequences in that that are pretty much like cinematic animation. It's, it's really, and Son of Stimpy as well. Like yeah. it was a really, for a, a, a Saturday morning cartoon, which I, I believe is what it was in the States. It's really quite pushing the envelope in a lot of respects from your sort of memories of as an animator were there any sort of like animation highlights or like shots or episodes that kind of stick in your memory as ones you're particularly fond of or proud of i you know sort of the iconic ones that that um when george licker gets hit in the head with the oar the uh, raging bull shot uh, geez, a geez a lot of the iconic ones i think are you know like stay put socks that was first season though mm-hmm just to backtrack a bit, when we started um, the first season, I remember we tried to cut back a bit in the animation because the deadlines were pretty tight and we were trying to take it a step back because we weren't sure how we would be able to handle like a series, like the, the flow of the series. Like we got a long time to do the pilot. And then the second season, we stepped it up. We brought in some more animators and we stepped it up a bit. But uh, not to say there's not a lot of good animation in the, in the first season. I think it was just simpler. And plus, we had Phil Cartoons working against us. We'd send, there was a lot of animation. Like, I, I, it's hard for me to look at Space Madness now because it was so screwed up in camera. It wasn't painted right. Uh, stuff wasn't shot. There was comp animation went completely missing. You know, stuff like that. And then when we for the second season, they started to do the digital ink and paint and camera in California, which made it much better. There were a lot less mistakes from that end of things. So it, it went a lot smoother. Mm. Each season of the show kind of has its own visual personality in a way. Like it's one of those shows, even though toward the end, especially in the games era, like shows could look different from episode to episode in quite a major way. But certainly as far as like the economics of the later episodes and then that kind of slick look to the second season and what you just sort of described with that first season, there was a certain rawness to that. It's one of those shows where you could sort of identify which period you're watching almost on site, which I always quite liked about it in a way. Yeah, I remember that we weren't absolutely sure what was going to happen when we started Kill the Yaxman. I said to everybody, well, let's just go for broke. Let's make this our swan song and let's just do a, a really, really super job and to the best of our abilities. And, and I, I think it turned out really great, personally. Mm -hmm. It remains just really, really great to look at. Yeah. You know, and, and sort of go through like sort of shots from, like I still use sort of 
scenes from Red and Stimpy as like reference material for like you know if I'm trying to get a handle on a character behavior or things like that and just the ways that certain performances were sort of put across in that style but in a very kind of real sort of engaging way um they're tremendous like studies for people who were working in 2d animation it's definitely it was like being in school every day you know a, a great sort of school it's like it, you get these layouts and they look like they come from two different worlds and you go how am i going to make these work and you it was a lot of problem solving trying to trying to get it and and not look bizarre like you know like not making the characters melt morph into these weird expressions and stuff like that so it was really great from that standpoint after working on a show like that you get a huge animation vocabulary so when you go elsewhere you go oh yeah i've, I've got to get to it from this pose to this pose how can i do it the most economically and the best way to do it hmm. and that again i think is a really valuable lesson that you know people can take from it if you know budgets are tight and as they often are well, I think one of the things I tried to focus on when we were working on Ren and Stimpy was I, I, trying to get the biggest bang for your buck. And I know a lot of people go, wow, there's so much animation. It looks full, but it's not really. It's like where you put it. You know, like we'd have Stimpy zip into a scene, but then the secondary action on the hair, you do maybe, you know, six drawings or whatever of hair, but it makes it look really lush. One thing I also really love, some guy has done a, I mean, maybe there are a few of these, but I, I saw some guy had done a blog where he's just putting up screen grabs of smears. Yes. Like those sort of smear tweens. And I, I, those are really great. And it's sort of weird how, looking through those, how much I smear, if, I, if I'm called upon to do like a shot like that, I'll have sort of subconsciously or subliminally picked up on, like, because yeah. my smears are just really similar to like Ren and Stimpy smears for some reason. Yeah. I think we used every every type of speed trick in the book. Smears, multiple images, stuff like that. It's fun though when you can when you have a huge vocabulary of animation techniques and you can use them. You can have your cake and eat it too. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it just everything you know got that much better. While it was very different, I mean, I remain quite fond of. I would say the greater percentage of the games era shows. I do feel like the last season was a bit rough yeah um, but the the third and fourth season i actually feel there's quite a lot of strong stuff in there uh and i'd be sort of curious because i i guess at that around that point you had moved on but did you ever sort of see much of the game zero episodes yeah i think i've seen most of them uh-huh. uh, i stayed in contact with some of the games people but uh, i mean there's there's a, a select number of ones that i really thought were great just off the top of my head and hopefully anybody from games that's listening to this isn't going to be offended, but I thought Mike's short, Ren's brain, Mm -hmm. uh, Chris Riccardi's, and especially, uh, strangely enough, Reverend Jack Cheese. Ah, yeah. (laughs) That's that's one that definitely, because that was just sort of bewildering at the time when I would have seen it. And then with the backstory. Yes, I I was just about to say, if you know the backstory and the references, it's very entertaining. And I saw the, uh, at some point there was like the deleted scenes from that one surfaced, which was like a really, really specific, like, yeah. the, like putting meat on John Grease Lucy's head and like. Oh, <laughs> that, oh yeah. You read the story about that in um, Sick Little Monkeys, right? Yeah. 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 Well, that was 
That's one of my moments. <laughs> uh, but it was good. I, I got a good, uh, you know, Jim Gomez sent me a uh, uncut version of it. So, yeah, I've never seen an edited version of it, so I don't know what they cut. I, uh, I got this very hacked up version of Ren and Stimpy the first time around. We showed it on BBC Two here. Yeah. And I guess it was an awkward time slot. They'd show it, it was weird. They'd show it on like a Tuesday at six in the evening. Like, my kids would be having like dinner. Yeah. And they, I, I think they had to wedge it in between shows. So they would inevitably cut out at least a minute per 20 minute block. So quite a lot of stuff I never actually saw until I got like DVDs. But then the DVDs would cut out other scenes. Yeah. I think out west has been hacked. Fortunately, I got complete versions of at least all the ones that we animated. And um, I think out west and Kilty Jackson, there was um, they bleeped out the word hell. They crossed it out and or fogged it out or whatever and bleeped the word hell. Mm-hmm. They cut a couple scenes out of Sven Hulk. I'm not sure whether they originally aired that way or. I think there's there's like three versions of Sven Hulk, so I'm not sure what what one actually aired. Yeah, I, I definitely have seen two versions. One that aired, but, and the other that was on like VHS at the time, and then I guess it, later on DVD. And uh, definitely there's a version with completely different music. Yeah, there's a, a version that's, we usually call it the bloated version. Oh. John tried to expand it to, 22 minutes and i think it's been circulating on the internet and then it came back uh, like um vanessa asked me to cut it and i said no thanks i'm not i'm not you know that's john's job i'm not disrespecting him by doing that and so i think it, it fell back into bob's hands and he cut it but it's not the version that we delivered because everything was like you know, if there was an eight-frame pause, it was made, you know, two or three times as long. So um, I, I noticed the last time I watched Van Hulk, I go, that doesn't look right. And then, you know, checking with pencil tests and stuff like that, I found out that it didn't actually go back to the original version. Hmm. It's, it's, I probably wouldn't have noticed as a kid, but probably now I think I'd probably pick it up on it. Because certainly timing is a, a major issue with that kind of thing and something that I, I also felt is one of the things that really kind of differentiates between perhaps the the games era is that games the episodes moved along at a very different sort of clip and i felt like the spumco episode sort of had more breathing room maybe yeah well I, i'll tell you an interesting story about that when that started to happen because the first season um, when I time stuff, I timed it pretty tightly with some room for editing. You, you know, you got to get handles and wiggle room and stuff like that just in case something doesn't work out. <clears throat> but I went down at the beginning of the second season to help kickstart it again. So I was working on Man's Best Friend. And I was, I was timing stuff. And it would get shot in an animatic form. And John would look at it and say, too fast. Mm. Go, oh, okay. And so I... I Take it back and retime it again. Too fast. Take it back, retime it again. Too fast. So this is actually when that sort of prolonged pauses started. And once I saw Man's Best Friend, it made sense to me. It was like, and particularly in Man's Best Friend, it was like it was like this this torture, you know, like when your dad stares you down and there's this kind of awkward silence. 
I think it worked particularly well for Man's Best Friend. Uh, I'm not sure it worked for the other episodes, but, you know, that's up to whoever's directing it. If they want to cut it, fine. If they don't, that's their prerogative. Bob Jakes there of Carbuncle Cartoons, generally considered one of the true originators of the animation overall style of what many consider to be Ren and Stimpy's golden age. Uh, Bob's more recently worked on productions such as Uncle Grandpa and Spongebob. And that, I guess, brings us to the end of this behemoth of a podcast. Uh, before we wrap up, here's some suggested further reading and uh, further viewing on top of the sites that we've mentioned so far. John Kreese for Lucy, of course, still very much a presence. You might want to read our feature, A Conversation with John Kreese for Lucy. That goes into some of his pre- and post-Ren and Stimpy projects. He was also in episodes four and five of the Squiggly podcast, if you want to go back to those. You can visit his site, johnkstuff.blogspot.com, as well as his Facebook page. You'll see updates from current projects, including some stuff he's been doing recently with Mike Judge. It's worth a look. And while he did show a thumbnail storyboard at Annecy for a proposed Ren and Stimpy short that would have, I think, bookended the last SpongeBob film, as far as future outings for the pair, he was recently quoted on Entertainment Weekly as saying, doesn't look like it, at least not without the creator of this creator-driven show. So whether or not that implies it would ever resurface, but just without his involvement, I suppose time will tell. As we mentioned earlier, a fantastic repository of oral accounts from the show's artists can be found in the book Sick Little Monkeys by Thad Komarowski. I spoke with Thad recently while putting this podcast together, and he said that he's putting the final touches on a second edition that will include input from even more artists, as well as some corrections to make it even more accurate and uh, Honestly, I really do think it's a fantastic case study of the pitfalls of TV animation production, and I recommend it to anyone who works in that area, uh, be they a Ren and Stimpy fan or no. Uh, for updates on when the new edition is coming out, check out Sick Little Monkeys, the unauthorized Ren and Stimpy story on Facebook, and thadkomorowski.com, and you can hear more from Thad about that project in episode 12 of this very podcast. In fact, if you did enjoy hearing from the artists in this episode, I would advise your very next stop should be animationscoop.com, where Thad's recent panel discussion with co-creator Bob Camp and artist Bill Ray can be found, and I'd hope to include some of that chat in this special, but I've been assured the audio recording didn't really come out great, but regardless, it's an absolutely fantastic read. Uh, Bob and Bill were among quite a few artists I'd hope to chat to for this special, but for various reasons, including scheduling and some people have zero web presence and also the word traumatized came up more than once. Uh, I wasn't able to pin everyone down, but artists I've remained a huge fan of since their Ren and Stimpy days would be Bob Camp himself. You can track him down at facebook.com slash boblabstudios and boblabshop.com. Scott Wills, the fellow responsible for perhaps the most memorable gross-out close-up paintings, and you can check out his amazing work for Ren and Stimpy and other shows at Candy Cane Land. The URL is animationbgs.blogspot.com. Bill Ray, an amazing painter, and a lot of his work would grace the Ren and Stimpy tie-in merchandise like comic book collections, VHS covers, and surprisingly listenable CDs. Uh, his sites are bigblownbaby.com and williamray.com. That's Ray with a W. Of course, on the show itself, he did brilliant work. He was one of my favorite of the contributing directors, Alongside Chris Riccardi and Lynn Naylor, some gorgeous art of theirs at Riccardi.com, that's two C's, and Linivee.com, L-Y-N-I-V-E. Vincent Waller, also tremendous. Visit incoherent-thought.blogspot.com. 
the wonderful Jim Smith at jimsmithcartoons.blogspot.com, Eddie Fitzgerald at uncleeddiestheorycorner.blogspot.com, and, uh, well, to be honest, I could actually just go down a complete rabbit hole of just listing the show's credits, so I'm going to curb it at this point. But don't take it personally if you worked on the show and I missed you out. Uh, while my feelings about the Revival series are mixed, it is also worth mentioning some of the talent involved in the Ren and Stimpy adult party cartoon, as well as Bob Jakes and Kelly Armstrong, the artists themselves, such as Nick Cross, who since worked on Over the Garden Wall, uh, Katie Rice, amazing designer, uh, Mike Cuddlesticks Geiger, and Jessica Baritsky, who we have a recent interview with on Squiggly. Uh, all worth checking out. So thank you so much to everyone for getting involved in this very special anniversary celebration. Uh, in particular, the new interviewees, Bob Jakes, Stephen DeStefano, and Jim Gomez, as well as those who tried to find the time but couldn't for reasons out of their control. Thanks also to Thad Komarowski for his assistance in getting contacts for the participants, and keep your eyes skinned for Sick Little Monkeys, the second edition, hopefully out soon. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. Squiggly is at Squiggly, and visit squiggly.com for all our animation, news, reviews, features, interviews, and such like. Recent coverage you might want to check out includes a chat with Australian animation talent Mighty Nice about their work with the band Churches, or Chverches, as they spell it, all old-timey-like. Also in the animated music video world, puppet masters Joseph Wallace and Peter Vatch discuss their recent stop-mode James music video, Dear John, and some lovely behind-the-scenes pics and some really great insight there. If you have an animated documentary short idea and you, you might want to look into the Anadox Residency Call for Proposals. It's an initiative set up by the Animation Workshop in Denmark, and we have some info up on that. Also, new footage and featurettes from Leica's latest Kubo and the Two Strings, out soon in the UK. An interview with Hound director Georgia Chris. It's a brilliant film. All that and more. We're quite the busy little beavers. Things are about to kick off once again for my latest film, Clemen Throw. But between now and the next podcast, it'll get itself a screening in Hungary at Busho Vision 12, the Budapest International Short Film Festival. It'll screen at 4.30pm September 3rd at the Erich Motzgau Film Museum. Visit busho.hu for more info there. Also, I want to extend my warm thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Independent Animation, Developing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films. And I know some of you are wondering when exactly it's going to arrive. Uh, although the release date was listed on the publisher's website as August 8th, I've now been told that it's only recently started to ship, but it is on its way. UK retailers are listing it as being available from August 29th, so hopefully those who ordered it already will have your copy by then. Uh, you may have to wait a bit longer if you're in the US, but it should have made it to your shores by early to mid-September. Knock on wood. So many thanks for your patience. Hopefully it will be worth the wait. I'll be doing a couple of talks discussing the new book and other projects, firstly at Animation Grill in Cardiff on September the 3rd. And this is a full day of animation activities and talks and networking and other speakers, including Palo Squiggly Jane Davies, Stop Mode Director Ben Hallowell, and Stephen Entercott of Double Negative, plus a panel discussion with all of us, chaired by Danny Abram and lots of other fun stuff. It's looking to be a fantastic day set up by Mr. Gareth Kavanagh, and you can buy yourself a very reasonably priced ticket at picatic.com slash animation supergrill. The following Monday on September 5th, I'll be speaking at Bring Your Own Animation Bristol at the Lazy Dog Pub. These are always fun too, and it's a great opportunity to bring work, get feedback. There's also a lot of ground covered in my book, so I'm hoping to have both talks be different enough. So if you can make either or both, it would be fantastic to see you. You can find Bring Your Own Animation Bristol on Facebook for more info there. 
So until next time, happy animating and for Christ's sake, don't whiz on the electric fence.